episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people of interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Gemma Sherwood. Gemma is Head of Maths at Haybridge High School and Sixth Form in Worcestershire. She's a governor at a primary school and a professional development lead for the NCETM. Gemma is also the creator of one of my favourite educational blogs, gemmaths.wordpress.com, and is the author of the excellent How to Enhance Your Maths Subject Knowledge, published by OUP. Now, this is actually Gemma's second appearance on the podcast, as she was my co-host for the Conference Takeaways podcast from Research Ed Rugby in 2018. And after that performance, the public demanded more. But of course, we didn't get round to talking about Gemma's excellent book, or how she runs her maths department, or anything like that, because just like Danny Quinn, Chris Bolton, and Naveen Rizvi before her, this conversation centred around one key question. How does Gemma plan a lesson? And once again, just like all previous guests, her answer is flipping fascinating. But fear not everyone, Gemma will return to this podcast in the near future so I can get through the other 92% of questions I have for her. In particular, I want to dig into her book and also about her running of a maths department. So in what turned out to be a wide-ranging conversation, we chatted about the following things and plenty more besides. What's Gemma's favourite failure and what did she learn from the experience? And then we dive deep into Gemma's planning process for a sequence of lessons. What does it look like? Where does she write it down? Where do the resources come from? What happens in the lesson? It's all there, as well as numerous fascinating tangents along the way. And then to finish, how has Gemma's views on silence in lessons changed over the years? Now, I absolutely adored this conversation. I've long been a massive fan of Gemma's work and having had a ball co-hosting the Conference Takeaway podcast from Research Ed Rugby with her, I could not wait to get her on the show. And she did not disappoint. Now, podcast listeners, I'll let you into a little secret. Gemma was a little reluctant to come on the show as she did not think she could offer listeners anything that other guests had not. I know we will all benefit from the fact that she changed her mind. Two very quick plugs before we crack on. There are 20 free diagnostic math revision quizzes for Key Stage 2 SATs, GCSE Foundation and GCSE Higher, available at diagnosticquestions.com forward slash revision 2019. So head over there to check out the questions and the quizzes and there'll be a link to that page in the show notes. If I do say so myself, they're flipping good. And that's largely because I wrote all the GCSE ones. And if you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of intelligent, engaged and quite simply incredible listeners, then I'm now offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of this very podcast. Just imagine your name, your product, your event being read out by me. What could be better than that? Just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to discuss the packages available. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Gemma Sherwood. (laughs) Now, this is another pre-baby Isaac conversation, so make the most of this. Because if you think I talk nonsense now, after eight hours sleep a night, you haven't heard anything yet. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other. 
Okay, Gemma. So we start as we always do on the podcast with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Well, I tried to think really carefully about this. Um, I just tried to come up with something quite clever. And then I realised that, that I was overthinking it. And it's obvious that my favourite number is 27. And what, why is that? Well, it kind of started when I was a little girl. Um, I really liked the fact that 27, this is going to sound really bizarre. I like the fact that 27 was three lots of nine. And I like the fact that nine was three lots of three. So it kind of felt lovely to me. And there was something about three that always felt a bit perfect. I'm not quite sure why. This is going to, like I say, it's going to sound really odd. So then I think as looking back, the reason I liked it so much was because it was three to the power of three. So it was just a number that felt lovely to me, um, composed of the same number of numbers, if that makes sense. Um, And when I stopped to think about it as well, the other number I also really love is four. But that's really similar because that's two squared. So we've got three to the power of three and two to the power of two. And there's something about both of those that I really like. Um, And I also realised that Part of this is to do with the way that certain numbers make me feel. And again, this is going to sound really odd. <laughs> but I, so I, when, when I think of some numbers, not all of them, when I think of some numbers, they come with associations. Um, and I've since found out that this is a kind of a bit of a type of synesthesia, you know, where some people see colours where they where they hear numbers. Yes. Um, and I don't have that. But, but I do have certain feelings associated with certain numbers. And I only realised this as I was getting older. Um, like, so I said that the, the number three just feels perfect, but also simple, simple yes. to me. Um, and the number four, it just feels like it's, it, there's no messing with the number four. It just does what it's supposed to do. This is, <laughs> I told you, this is really bizarre. <laughs> but number five is awkward. I don't like number five. Gee, and, <laughs> I don't know why. But this is like a, an actual feeling you get, Gemma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is this a thing? Is this a, is this a thing? Is this... It is. Pe- has it got a name? It's called ordinal linguistic personification, which sounds really posh. Um, but I don't have it for all numbers. Um, and you'd think, say, I don't know, something like if I, if I like two to the power of two and three to the power of three, you'd think I'd like four to the power of yeah, four and five to the yeah. power of five. But I couldn't even tell you what they were because <laughs> I don't, they're kind of outside your daily experience, aren't they? Numbers yes. that large. Wow. Just say that, say that name to me one more time, what it's called. Like. It's called Ordinal Linguistic Personification. Wow. <laughs> I only discovered this a couple of years ago. Now, um, there, may, there may well be listeners yeah. nodding along thinking, finally, someone's put a name to what, what I've been suffering from here. <laughs> this is, that is fascinating. That, that's brilliant, that, Gemma. Well, what about question number two? What's your favourite in topic uh, in maths as a student? Sorry, what was your favourite topic? Uh, okay, so... It varied depending on the stage of school that I was in. And because I always loved maths, I always had something that was my favourite. But I, I particularly remember when I was really little, I felt compelled to count everything. So I'd walk down the street past street lamps and I'd be counting them in, in my head involuntarily as I went along. Or the phone would ring. Um, and it's back in the day before ringtones. It was just, you know, an old fashioned ring. Yes. And I would automatically start counting the number of rings until my <laughs> mum would pick the phone up. <laughs> so um, I think I just. Uh, yeah. So that started 
a love of anything to do with patterns and uh, repeating patterns, I think. So then when I look at the topics that I really enjoyed throughout school, they all have this same theme running through. Um, I loved learning the times tables. I lived for a very short period of time in Scotland when I was about seven years old. And I remember hearing the class next to our class chanting the times tables and thinking, that's amazing. I want to do that. I really want to do that. And it was something about the, the, the patterns and it was beautiful. And then going on a bit further, when I was in secondary school, uh, I loved finding the nth term of a sequence. It kind of, it felt like it, it I love the fact you could generalise something um, oh, yes. and, and something could be so entirely predictable. It sounds quite dull, doesn't it? But oh, <laughs> I no. loved it. But then if I go a bit further on, when I got to say A-level, for instance, um, I liked integration and, and particularly by substitution. And I like the fact that you could take something that was so complex and reduce it to something very straightforward. Um, and in a similar way, trig identities take an expression that looks really complicated and do some kind of magic with it and turn it into something really simple. Jeez. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, Jamie, you must have been a, a delight to teach as a student. Were you, were you just kind of loving maths all the way through? Was there any, bits, any bit that you hated? Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, when I was at A-level, the one bit I really disliked was uh, things like combinations and permutations. Wait, you're statistics. joking. No, yeah, but they're, they're the best. Are you well, serious? <laughs> you see, now as a teacher, I love them now and I love teaching them. But at the time, I hated them. I think part of the problem was the fact that my A-level maths teacher was a physicist and he ah. openly said to us, I don't really understand statistics properly. So I'm going to tell you this stuff, but I don't really know how to explain it to you. He was very honest. Yes. Um, and, and that transferred to me, I think. So I didn't really make sense of it. I didn't understand. I could never remember what the difference was between a combination, yes. a combination and a permutation and when you use which formula when and all these kinds of things because I didn't really understand what was going on. And I deliberately avoided anything to do with statistics in my uh, degree, which you won't be very pleased to hear. But <laughs> well, when, I started just... becoming, when I became a teacher, I forced myself to go back and learn it properly. And now I love it and I love teaching it. That's good. And it wasn't Mark McCourt who was teaching you back then, was it? No, he wasn't. No, it wasn't. Fine, <laughs> fine, 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 fine. Good. OK, well, a third speed dating question, Gemma. What job would you like to do if you weren't a maths teacher? Well... Depends if you want the realistic one or the pie in the sky one. Let's have them both. Let's have them both. <laughs> so if we take the way I went with my degree and my career and I hadn't become a math teacher, I would probably have gone into something in finance because it felt like the obvious direction mm. to go in had I not gone into teaching. But I nearly didn't do maths at university at all because when I was at school, there was something else that took, almost took my attention away from maths completely, and that was learning languages. I absolutely loved learning languages. And I, I always used people used to say to me, yeah, but why would you do maths and languages? They're so very different. And to me, they weren't because the gay languages were about patterns. And even when you have um, unusual verb conjugations or noun declensions and exceptions, there were always some kind of pattern or reason behind those. Um, so I found it really logical and I loved doing languages as well. So I got to A-level I and mean, I, did, I did maths. Um, uh, sorry, I did uh, Spanish and French and Russian at GCSE. And then at A-level, I carried on with Russian and I applied to do Russian degrees as well as maths degrees on my UCAS form because wow. I couldn't decide which one to do. Um, and I, I was offered a place at Oxford to study Russian. And in the end, maths just won out. So I ended up doing a degree in Birmingham at Birmingham in maths and Russian together. Um, but I nearly did 
just Russian. And had I done that, I, I suppose in my mind, I'd, have, I'd now maybe I'd be translating or interpreting for the UN or translating novels or something, something grand wow. like that. <laughs> and it is, again, it's interesting that it comes back to the patterns as well. That's that that's fascinating mm. stuff, that Gemma. Well, you, you've kind of teed us up uh, there for the next question, which is to to tell the listeners a little bit about your career. So you're on this kind of make or break uh, decision point where you choose maths over over languages. What what happens then? Where, where did where did you go then, and how did you get to where you are now? So I did my degree, which was um, a major. That's two thirds maths and a third minor in Russian. Um, and I tried to combine them a little bit. So my final year uh, Russian essay, Russian language essay I wrote was on a mathematician called Kolmogorov, a Soviet mathematician. So I tried to combine the two of them wherever I could. Um, and in the end, I maths won out and I spent more, much more of my time doing that. And I got to the end of my degree and I was thinking, desperately thinking about what I wanted to do next, because every decision I'd made up until that point had been led by what I enjoyed doing the most rather than any setting my sights on any kind of future career that hadn't really entered my mind whatsoever because I never really knew what I wanted to do. So I, I, I sat down with lots of people and talked things through and a few people had said to me, we think you'd be quite good at being a teacher. And my mum was a teacher. She was a primary school teacher. And I used to watch her bring stacks of books home at night. And I'd say, <laughs> I am never, ever, ever going to be a teacher. That's one thing I know I'm not going to do. But the more I thought about it um, as a 21 year old and people were telling me, we think you'd be quite good at that, but you ought to give it a go. I thought, well, let's try it. And if I don't like it, I can go do something else. It's not a problem. So I signed up for the PGCE and had, had the interview and that was all fine and started the PGCE and within the first week I thought this is fascinating I love this <laughs> and I started my first few placements in schools and really thoroughly enjoyed it so that was it then I was sold really Jeez. so I yeah and so I went on to, sorry oh, sorry Gemma no no and, and this is something sorry to, to interrupt your flow but this, this is something I, I should have asked you a little bit earlier on I'm just, just going back again to that that decision you made um, uh, when you've done your A-levels to, to choose um, to, to do maths uh, maths and languages versus a straight language degree was that a big thing particularly with having the offer from Oxford did, did, did that add a bit of extra twist to the decision thinking it's quite a big call to turn down an offer at Oxford. I mean, Birmingham, a very, very respectable university. But was that was that a, was that a big thing for you at that at that age? It was. I agonised over it for ages. Really, I really did because a lot of me thought, well, you can't possibly turn down a place yeah. at Oxford University. That's insanity. But then there was always something that was going, but that's not actually quite what you want to do. Yes. Um, and in the end, it was that voice that that won because that. It, I think ultimately I knew that although it, it would have been very prestigious and it would have been very wonderful, it wasn't what I really wanted to spend the next three years of my life doing. That's fascinating. So that was the one that won. That's mm. superb. So, so okay, so we're in the PGCE. Um, where does it go from there? Just talk, talk us through your various schools and positions that you've held in them, Gemma, if that's okay. Mm, I'd be, I started off teaching in a school where I'd done one of my PGCE placements. And after being there for a year, I actually... It got to the point where I didn't really enjoy what I was doing because um, 
it was quite a challenging school. It was full of wonderful people and wonderful teachers and there wasn't a problem there, but I found it quite challenging and I didn't feel very supported as an NQT. Is that because of the behaviour? Mainly, yeah. yes. And I didn't know what to do to sort it out and I didn't feel like I was getting... The people around me, immediately around me, my, my mentor in my department, she was absolutely amazing, but the structures in the school yes. weren't there to support us. And I found it so hard. I used to go home after having this year nine class for four days a week, period five, with these this group of kids who could just see that I was easy pickings and I didn't know what to do with them. And I'd go home crying at the end of the day and it got to the point where I said, I don't want to do this. Why am I going home crying after my day at work? That's insane. So I saw an advert in the um, in, in the local Worcestershire uh, teaching uh, paper for a position at a maternity leave, a years-long position at a, at a school I'd heard of. And lots of people said, oh, it's a brilliant school there. Um, so I applied for this job uh, for this year-long uh, maternity cover and got that job along with, it turns out, they, they didn't tell us something, and the advert turns out there were two maternity covers. So out of the four of us that were interviewed, two of us ended up being offered um, at this year's position. And I started off and I remember sitting in the assembly on my first day and the head teacher said something that I will never forget. He looked at the, children, uh, the, 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 the students in front of him and he said, I want you all to give your teachers a round of applause for last year and for all the hard work they put in for you. And I was like, whoa, where am I? <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I, I worked at that school and really fortuitously the lady who was on maternity leave who was uh, I think she was from New Zealand decided to move back to New Zealand with her husband and so the position became permanent and I applied for permanent position and got that one um so, and that's the school I've been at ever since really oh yes nice. so yeah how, how many years is that Gemma so I started working there in 2006 wow and what what, what positions have you held in that time well in 2008 I became I, I did my MED again at Birmingham because uh, the PGC we did there they, they gave us master's credit, credits so I used those in 2008 to convert it up to an MED and I became an AST that year which looking back is rather bizarre because I was 26 years old and, and somebody came I mean I think you, you would probably went through a similar thing because you were an AST weren't yes, you Craig yes. and somebody comes and does this assessment on you for the day and it's like your own kind of personal Ofsted inspection is the way <laughs> yeah, I used yeah, to yeah. describe yeah. it to people and he came and watched me teach and he spoke to students and he spoke to teachers and he spoke to parents all about me um, and then they at the end of the day they kind of make or break and say whether or not they're going to award you this position so I, I was awarded this position based on this evidence that the guy collected on me and my teaching and then after that you get sent out by the local authority to go and advise heads of department who've yep. been doing it for donkey's years compared <laughs> yep. to you and who know a lot more than me and I think I must have been awful and I remember looking <laughs> back at some of the things that I said to people when I went to their schools and thinking if somebody came to me and said that now I'd be like what on earth are you on about yes but it was I'll tell you what though it was um I, I often say this it was it was kind of the making of me like I, I loved the I loved being an AST because purely because like once a week you were chucked into God knows what like a, a school that, that you didn't know too much about working with experienced teachers less experienced teachers different cultures within the school having to think on your feet I got to watch so many different lessons delivered by so many mm. different teachers it was like from a purely selfish point of view when I, I don't know if I was offering anything half decent in fact I'm sure I wasn't to the schools I was visiting but I was learning flipping loads did, did you find the same did, did you enjoy being an AST absolutely yeah 
and, and exactly just what you said. I don't know what quality, looking back, and especially in the early days, I don't know what quality what I said to people was. But, yeah, what I learned was absolutely superb. Um, and, and I don't feel like I've missed out on, through being in the same school for the last 12 years yes, because yes. I've actually been in so many different schools, like you say. I've watched hundreds and hundreds of lessons um, and I've spoken to so many different heads of department who do things in different ways and learned so much from it. So I don't feel like I need to move to get experience of different places because I've seen so many different places already through that position. That's interesting. That's interesting. So what happened after um, AST? Um, so in 2010, it, I had my son. And in the AS, that was when the government changed and the AST position was, was got rid of yes. and all pay scales that went with it. So they introduced something called an SLE, a specialist leader in education, which is essentially the same role, but without any pay scales attached to it or anything yes. formal attached to it. So I went through the process for that and just changed the name there. Um, and there was I can't remember when exactly, but around somewhere between 2010 and 2013, we were without a second in department. So I stood in as second in department for a year there. But my head of department had been he'd been there for quite a few years before I joined. And he was of the opinion that he was never, ever going to move on. So <laughs> I just thought, well, I, I need to do other things because I'm never going to get to be head of department. here. But I love the school and I didn't want to go to a different school. Um, in 2012, I had my daughter and I went back in 2013 and that was when I went to work three days a week. So I became part time then and I carried on with um, school to school support. But also in that sometime in that time, but I don't know exactly when we became a teaching school. So we started to run lots of courses from our school and I became more involved in that. So we would have groups of teachers and groups of heads of department come to us and we'd run day courses or courses over a prolonged period of time. So through that, we, I did things like the TSST course, which was um, a government funded programme called Teacher Subject Specialism Training. And it was for the PE teachers and the geography teachers and everybody else who was co-opted, who'd been co-opted into teaching maths. And this was the course for us to just help them really, help them yes. with pedagogy and with their subject knowledge and those kinds of things. So I did that for a quite a good few years um, up until last year, actually, was the last one. And then the funding for that was pulled. So that one, that one stopped for a bit now. <laughs> so I had this kind of period of a few years doing courses and doing bits of school to school support. There was one school where I went um, and worked with a new head of department there every fortnight for a whole year. And that was really that was that was a really rewarding thing to do because it, it, it came with this guy coming in having no experience whatsoever and I would just go and he'd ask me questions and I'd give him my ideas and by the end of it he was doing a fabulous job it was really 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 lovely to see him grow and to nice. see where we started and where he ended up and all those things um yeah in 2015 I was nominated for the teaching awards by my school and I won that year I was um, on the shortlist um, so I won a silver award for the teacher of a year in the secondary school nice and I was actually <laughs> bizarrely like just give you a bit more of an insight into me I was debating whether or not to even mention that um, <laughs> and the reason I was debating whether or not to mention it is because I find it really misleading because it I don't want to say oh, look at me, I'm a wonderful teacher, because I don't think I do anything differently to hundreds of teachers up and down the country, day in, day out. 
Um, what I have is I work for a brilliant head who recognises what we do and she actively tries to celebrate what we do. Um, and she was very lovely in making this nomination. And there are hundreds of teachers who do what I do and they just haven't had such a nomination. But oh, there's, no, there's nothing different there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very kind of modest and, and humble way to look at it, uh, Gemma. But yeah, it, it's a very prestigious award that you should be, yeah, incredibly proud of. And if you haven't mentioned it, I certainly would have done anyway. So it, <laughs> it, it, was, coming, it was coming up regardless. So, <laughs> so, then, uh, yeah, in, so yeah, go no, on. Go, I was going to say, in 2016, I became the head of the department. And why was that? How did you manage that with this this previous head who wasn't going anywhere? Did you organise a coup or something to get get him out? Yeah, it was all orchestrated. <laughs> <laughs> we had secret meetings and everything. No. Um, and what happened was he was uh, he was the data manager for the school as well. And in the end, the head teacher said that I would like you to him. I would like you to be um, an assistant head if you're going to be our data manager as well, because I don't want you to. It's far too much for one person to be doing head of maths and data and everything else. So he became an assistant head, and the man who was second in the department became head of the department for a while. And then um, a couple of years later, he stepped down. Um, so I applied for the head of the department role. But I did say that I would like to still be on three days a week and they agreed. So that's good. So I'm now head of department on three days a week and I have a wonderful department. But it's a very interesting one as well because they're also experienced because I have the former head of department who's now the assistant head. And I have his um, successor who was my head of department. Uh, and I have another teacher who used to be a deputy head and is now a maths teacher. So I've got all these wonderful, really experienced people in the department and most, many of them who are more experienced than me, which makes wow. it fascinating. That is fascinating. And, and indeed, we're going to be digging into running a department and the pressures and then the kind of tips and all that kind of stuff later on in the conversation. That, that's superb, that Gemma. Um, well, let, let's move now to, to one of my favourite questions, and that, that's the favourite failure. So I wonder if you could think about a lesson that you taught either recently or in the past that, that didn't go to plan. And, and crucially, what did you learn from the experience? OK, um, there have been a lot of these. So... <laughs> I'm going to go for when I had a year eight class and it must have been about four years ago, I think. And we'd been doing some work on straight line graphs. And I decided in my wisdom that it was a good idea to try and do something completely different. They were a, a kind of a, a there was a middle set and there were lots of students in that class that really weren't that bothered at all. Um, you know, those kind of stereotypical boys who just would rather be anywhere else than sitting <laughs> yeah. in maths at that moment. <laughs> so I thought, well, let's do something completely different and see if I can just get them interested. So I've seen um, online an idea of drawing Mondrian inspired art using straight lines. So, so, you know, the Mondrian art where it's the horizontal and vertical lines with blocks of colour oh, yes. positioned in between. Um, and, I th and, and I'd seen this activity and somebody said, this is great. You draw these horizontal and vertical lines on the axes and you get them to label the equations of the lines and then they can colour it in and they create this art and it looks great on your walls and all of this. Sounds perfect. And I thought, yeah. And I thought, OK, let's give it a go. And I really wish <laughs> I hadn't. <laughs> because to put it in a bit of context, 
like I say, it was a rather difficult group and I only taught them for three lessons a fortnight because sometimes, you know, when you have to have split classes, I was the minor teacher in the split class. So I was already on the back foot because I wasn't the person that they saw the majority Mm. of the time. Um, And I had to, because of that, as you do when you're the minor teacher in a split class, you have to work harder just to reinforce your expectations and all these things because they don't see you so often. And by doing something completely unusual and completely different to the very highly structured lessons that I normally had to do with them, it essentially gave all those boys permission to not do anything whatsoever. Mm. And I need to get up out of my seat. I need to go and get those colouring crayons. I need to go and get a sharpener from him over on the other side of the room. And all of a sudden you've got all these little issues going on all over the place that ordinarily you wouldn't have. And it, it wasn't long into the lesson where I thought, why on earth have I done this? This is just <laughs> ridiculous. But, but more than that and more than the behaviour issues, what it really helped me to understand afterwards was the fact that the activity itself did not help them to learn any maths whatsoever. I could give a set of axes to my six-year-old and say, draw some vertical lines there with your ruler, draw some horizontal ones there. On the vertical ones, write X equals the number you've put it through. On the horizontal ones, Y equals the number you've put it through. And then colour in some blocks in between. And she could do that. And she wouldn't have a clue what she was doing or why she was writing this. And spending a lesson doing that with these students was essentially the same thing. They had no idea at the end of it why the vertical lines were X equals and why the horizontal lines were Y equals. And it kind of you've got to be so careful because activities like that can give an illusion of them learning something. And even if they'd been totally perfectly behaved throughout it and even if they'd been sat there doing it really well, it would give the illusion of learning something. But I mean, you've spoken to so many people about this on your podcast. But what what they're actually thinking about is drawing lines and colouring in. Yes. They're not thinking about the mathematics. So to an untrained eye, to an observer from SLT coming in, for instance, they would go, oh, that was great. That was so out of the box. They were really enjoying that. And they were and they, and it was and it was the maths, but in a totally different way. But to a trained eye, when I stopped and looked at it, it wasn't at all. It was just a waste of an hour, really. That's is fast. It's a fascinating example, like Gemma, and, and I bet if you were to kind of look look where that resource came from, where if it was on Tez or something like that, it'd have five star reviews coming left, right, and centre out of it because it it look it looks like it's doing everything. It looks like kids are getting mm. the key practice, but they're getting it in a different way. You're producing some real nice work at the end of it. It's the classic thing where the kids are probably going to be engaged in that task, but the question, of course, is what on earth are they engaged in? What are they thinking about? And yeah. so on and so forth that is um yeah it's it's a fascinating example can i just ask you would you even if now you were like if you were the main teacher of that class you knew that class behavior wasn't an issue would you ever use that particular activity again or is it just uh, is there a place for things like that or is it just a no-go I wouldn't because i think uh, especially now with the processes i've gone through in recent years I think that um, the maths itself deserves more than that. I think that you, uh, my students need me to think so carefully about what they're learning, when and how they're learning it and why they're learning it. And that there, all I was doing there was I was picking an activity to try and fit a topic. Yes. 
Yeah, that, that I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there, Gemma. That, that was my planning essentially for six years was was find find a five star resource and shoehorn it into a lesson, no matter whether it fit or not. That's mm. yeah, that's very interesting. Can I can I just ask before I before just in case I forget to ask this later? Um, another interesting thing you've hit upon there is this this split classes and and that happens a great deal in in math. In fact, I've never been in a school where there wasn't some kind of split classes. Sometimes even between three teachers, let let alone two teachers. Um, and I think you're right that the person who has the kind of minority role the one who takes two out of the five or one out of the four whatever it is um, it can be potentially difficult there do you have uh, and again whether you you answer this with your head of department hat on or your just maths teacher dealing with them um, split classes on a day-to-day basis hat on um, are there any ways of making that work more successfully than it perhaps does in in some schools Gemma um I find that it works differently depending on who I share a class with, first of all. Some teachers that I share with, and it it was not even the more experienced one, I think it depends more on their temperament and how they like to approach things. Some teachers will are quite happy to take it lesson by lesson and I'll say, I've got to this point, you pick up from here, and then at the end they'll tell me. And I personally like that because I like um, the every lesson to be in part of a sequence for my yes. students no, no matter who's teaching them in that sequence um but i have other teachers in my department who don't like doing that at all well, normally because they like to plan much more in advance yes um, and they will say okay if you've got these couple of lessons will you for the next three weeks will you teach them topic z mm. um and i don't think there's necessarily one way superior to the other i think um However you do it, you need to make sure that you're not just fobbing something off on the minority teacher. You have yes. to understand that it's going to be it's going to be harder for them because they don't have the opportunity to establish relationships properly. They don't have the opportunity to regularly reinforce their expectations. So you need to be aware of that. Um, I think if the school has a consistent ethos, that's very helpful. If you're in a school where everything's left down to each teacher in their classroom, then that makes it much, much harder, much, much harder. Uh, but if you're in a school where there are consistent expectations for behaviour, for instance, throughout every classroom, then that makes the minor teacher's job much easier. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, when you're saying about that... Um who does what whether you continue the sequence or you kind of split the topics I like I, I always think now if you if you think to kind of the research in, into interleaving and stuff it almost sounds like it's going to be perfect to split the topics so like on a Monday they're doing sequences and all of a sudden switch on a Tuesday they're doing constructions then the other teacher comes in on a Wednesday back to sequences it sounds like it, it should work well but again it's the key thing with Bjork's desirable difficulties that the kind of initial knowledge has got to be in there to begin with before you yes. start switching things around to making it hard so yeah I think I would certainly pre- uh, prefer the, the, the sequence of lessons but again at the same time I'm one of those who likes to plan like a, a good week in advance and stuff I don't I don't like too much trying to do things the night before and so on and the other thing I was going to say and just on a logistical thing I don't know if you found this as well but at our school so we have um, we'll have five lessons a week with say for example year nines and there'll be possibly like a three two split so a teacher will have three lessons and the, uh, the other 
teacher will have two lessons a week. And we have a rule where the, the teacher has the three lessons. They're the majority teacher. So they do the parents evening. They do the reports and they tend to do the majority of the marking as well. And the downside of that, of course, is if you end up with quite a few of these where you've got three of the lessons, you mm. get end up with a far more work proportionally than you should have. Whereas you're laughing if you get a load of two lessons uh, classes, because, again, yeah. you, you, it's a fair chunk of your teaching thing, but you don't have to do all the, the painful stuff that goes along with it. How, how do you manage that, Gemma, those kind of, like the workload element of split classes? We try to share it proportionally. So we have a fortnightly timetable. Um, some year groups have eight hours a fortnight and some of them have seven. So if my year eight class this year, for instance, I share in a four four split. So one of us wrote the reports and the other one's going to do the parents evening. Yes. And we alternate. So in a week one, he sets the homework and marks, does the marking and all those. And in week two, I do it. So we just decided where the delineation goes and shared everything as, as much to 50 yeah. 50 as we possibly can. Uh, if, although I've, if we take, say, my year 10 class, they have um, also eight lessons a fortnight. Um, they have six with me and two with a minor teacher. So I'm doing all of the parents evening all of the reports everything because i don't think it's fair to say yes. to somebody if you have them for two lessons a fortnight i want you to do any of this stuff because i'm yeah i just don't like that at all when you get to something like a four three split <laughs> or a five three i would probably say i'll do it all but when we get to say a four three split in the year groups where they have seven lessons what i've said is what i've said to, to the team is please talk to each other and decide what you think is a fair split. So I know that some people have said, well, well when it's report writing, I'll take this half of the class, you take that half. Um, but then I'll the, the, the slightly more slightly more uh, majority teacher will do the parents evening. Yes. Others of them have just gone, I'll do parents evening, I'll do reports. And, but I have said to them, please do talk and apportion <laughs> as best you can. Because, yeah. like you say, it's not fair if you end up being the minor teacher. You you get away with not having to do half as much as the other person would have to do. Absolutely right. And I think you're right. It's, it's the classic thing, communications, that the key to sort, sorting that one out. Absolutely. And just before There's, we... we Oh, sorry, go on, Gemma. No, I was going to say, there is one more thing I want to say on it. And that's with oh, this yeah. year 10 class that I said I've got this year. I'm trying something else with the way we split the, the teaching because it's a, a 6-2 split across the fortnight. So what I'm doing is I'm doing all the, the topics that are coming up on the scheme of work. And then the other teacher has them once a week. So I'm asking him specifically to revise certain other topics. So, for instance, when we do we do these uh, starters from uh, MathBox. Yes. Where they, it's 10 questions on the board and it's all on things they've done previously and it's just to try and help the key things ticking over. When there are topics that come up there that the class really hasn't got a clue on, I'll say to the other teacher, can you just spend a couple of lessons for the next few weeks doing doing this again or you know revising this and that's something i'm trying for the first time to see whether we can build in the opportunity for this ongoing revision from the start of year 10 that's nice and does that seem to be working quite well so far i don't know yet <laughs> <laughs> ask me in a few months and i'll tell you it's certainly make, it's definitely making a difference to the uh, the mass box <laughs> activities if nothing else they well, are starting a, to remember it a bit more as we go along so that's well, good that's a positive sign but i, I think again you hit the nail on the head you mentioned this previously the the worst thing to possibly do is to give that minority teacher all the crap topics yeah that, again when they don't have the relationship the, the key for me seems to be 
you've almost got to kind of prioritize helping the relationships form with that minority teacher and the rest of the class because you're the, the majority teacher is almost going to get it through just time spent with the class and so on and so forth mm. whereas it's it's a lot more yeah it's, it's a lot more difficult for those relationships to form so yeah in the and, past... and of course Craig I know you said you know we don't want to give them the crap topics of course there are no crap topics oh no of course well but, but we, uh, we yes. all get tempted to send the constructions to somebody else don't we correct <laughs> and any kind of compound measures I shift them off straight away <laughs> absolutely fantastic all right so let's move now on to on to planning a lesson now i love asking i love when i get just a, a kind of math specialist on because we we can just go as deep into this as, as as we want to or as we need to so i just want you to take us through the process of, of planning a lesson or a sequence of lessons uh, with a given class and just give us as much background as you can about the the class the topic any any kind of issues w with the class themselves and what i'll do Gemma, is i'll annoyingly interrupt you at various points just to yeah, take us off on tangents and, and get clarification and, and so on and so forth so start let's start us off what's the topic what's the class um and where does your planning process begin so um the class is a year seven class they are um, a middle set so in my school the students in this set tend to go on to get anywhere between a grade four and a six when they do their gcse's yes um there are 32 in the class I've taught them from the start of year seven and we've got about three weeks on order of operations. Okay. So the first thing I'll do, and this is very different to what I used to do, very different. But the first thing I'll do is I'll look at the, 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 the kind of general objectives of what I want these students to be able to do at the end of these three weeks. Bearing in mind things like uh, I know that in the future I'm going to have to come back to it because they're going to forget it and all those kinds of yes, things. But just yes. what do I want them to be able to do at the end of these three weeks um, and what can I then use to build on in the future? So I will we, we use Active Studio um, boards at our school. So I yep. will open up a blank flip chart and I will start by um, adding lots of pages with the general sequence that I think this is go the, this series of lessons is going to go through. So with something like order of operations, then my first page, I'll be I'll, I'll just write at the top. We'll, we're going to do um, multiplication, division, addition and subtraction. So we're just going to start with those. And, and then I'll start to think about questions to put on the next few pages that I want to do with the class, questions that I want to use as part of my instruction. And then um, but I'll start just with the heading. So I'll start by writing multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. Yes. And then the next thing along is I'm going to introduce indices into it. And then uh, after that, I'm going to I'll, I'll do some simple examples with indices. And then we're going to bring in indices. Go, But going back to more uh, bringing in multiplication, division, addition, subtraction as well. Um Bearing in mind, if I just backtrack a moment, something like the multiplication, division, addition and subtraction, I'll start with something simple like five times six add three and three add five times six. Yes. But then we'll start to bring in longer, um, longer chains of multiplication and division in amongst the addition and subtraction and gradually inc increase the complexity but within that simple constraint of those four operations god because 
and sorry, Gemma, just to clarify, you are you're doing this, this stage of the plan. This is by writing questions. You're not you're not kind of yeah. listing lengthy objectives or anything. You've got your no, heading, no, no. and your planning is coming through creating these questions within this this active uh, flip chart. Is that right? Yeah, but, and the reason is because that's the way that I find it easiest to think about the the maths that I want them to do. Yes, because um, I can start to think about questions that will throw them. So that and then that will cause me to think about why that might throw them. So then what else can I do with them to help address that? And and, and the, for me, it kind of seems obvious to say it, but the easiest way to think about teaching the maths is to think specifically about the maths, which is the question, yes. isn't it? That's interesting. Um, and sorry, and I yeah. interrupted you as well. You were, you were just saying how you're going to go quite deep. I don't know if deep's the word that you use, but you're going to go let, well, let's just chuck it in the mix anyway. You're going to go quite deep, but within the within the constraint, this relatively narrow constraint of you're only doing addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Because there's all sorts in there where we know that our students are going to slip up. Um, and the, you start with the obvious, like um, is three add five times six the same as five times six add three? Yes. And we all know that if we present that the both of those questions simultaneously to a class and ask them to give us the answers, there will be those in there who will just read from left to right in both yes. cases and we'll get different answers. So we th that's the obvious one. Everybody knows that. But then when you get to something like uh, four add three times uh, six divided by two minus five. The fact that you've got a slightly longer sequence in the mm. middle there of um, multiplication and division leads to other questions. So you will have students there who will think that division must come before multiplication, for instance, because they've yes. been taught big maths at primary school. Um, so there's there are all sorts of extra layers of complexity just within the four op four operations. And okay. I don't want. Oh, sorry, Gemma. Okay. No, sorry. You, fin gonna... no, you finished that sentence. I was just going to say, what I don't want to do is spend one hour on the four operations and think that that's enough. Because personally, unless uh, I have a particularly able class, I know from experience that there will be so many misconceptions in there that one hour isn't enough to sort them all out. Got it. Got it. And just if we just take this this first kind of bit of this, this the, the four operations and so on and so forth, is the complexity coming purely from the length of the kind of chains within these questions? Or are you interleaving in other topics like are you chucking a little decimal into the mix, a negative, a fraction, or does that come somewhere else? That would depend on the class. Um, at some point in this, I will bring in decimals. Um Sometimes I'll leave it till the very end until I've done the order of operations in, in its entirety. Sometimes I will bring it earlier on. But my worry with a class such as the one that I'm talking about now in bringing in decimals at this stage is that I don't want to overcomplicate things before mm. they've really got the concept of the thing I'm trying to teach them, which is the order of those operations. So if I have if I need if they start to think have to think about decimals in that as well, that's taking away some of their capacity to think away from the order of the operations.
Yes. And again, that comes back to what we were saying before about these desirable difficulties. This interleaving is only desirable if it's not too difficult. If, if, mm. if they haven't grasped the basics of the, as exactly as you say, process and the order of operations, chucking in something else into the mix is potentially not going to not going to do either of both worlds because they're going to struggle with the order of operations and they're going to struggle with the, with the decimals. I think, yeah, it, it just muddies the waters. Absolutely. And, and again, when a kid struggles on that question, you're then having to play detective. Did they yeah. struggle because they don't know the, de- the decimals or was it the, was it the order of operations okay so this is fascinating so you're doing you're writing kind of questions are you are you sequencing them at this point in terms of kind of order of difficulty and stuff or is this just just kind of banging any any thoughts that, that come into your head what's it actually looking like at this stage Gemma? yeah no generally it's sequencing so um I will tend to write down, um, I don't know, maybe four or five questions for something like the four, the, the basic four operations, maybe four to five questions that I think are either increasingly difficult or increasingly introduce further misconceptions. Mm. So I suppose for want to rephrase, they're kind of hinge questions whereby they, they, they're deliberately designed to, for, to show me whether or not children in the class um have understood or misunderstood something i see so they'll always have a potential kind of misconception well a way of revealing a misconception built in there if that makes sense yeah yeah got it got it and are you you're doing this um for, for all the kind of uh components of this sequence of lessons so you've done it for the four operations you're doing the exact same thing for indices and then the exact same thing for what comes after that is is that right yeah so what i what i end up with um is a massive big long flip chart of probably 30 pages with lots and lots of questions one after the other and then any other any other activities built in between that, which I might go and add in subsequently. But that's where it starts. It just starts with this kind of long sequence of this is where I envisage this will go. Got it. And can I just ask at the very end of that sequence, do you then at this stage of planning, are you thinking about kind of problem solving style activities or is this all just about the sequencing of the kind of these hinge questions, as, as you called them before? Um. Sometimes, although I probably won't think about problem solving until I've actually started teaching it, yes. because uh, things like that, you need to know what's happening as you go along. You need to know how the class are picking things up. You need be, you need to be able to adapt what you're doing, because mm. if I it, it, uh, say I don't like to plan too far in advance because I don't want to waste loads or spend lots of time thinking about something too in depth and then have yes. to change, change it all because then I've wasted my time. So yeah. I'll kind of broadly sketch out where I think the sequence is going to go, but then add things in, change things, spend extra time on things while we go through it. Got it. Got it. This this is fascinating. So you've got this, you've got this flip chart in front of you. Let, let's say we've. Oh, just just out of interest, how, how long would that process take you, Gemma? Of, of setting up the questions initially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're talking about three weeks worth of lessons for mm. a class, um, but I probably wouldn't spend more than an hour on it. We, uh, but a lot of that is because I've done this so many times yes, over so yes. many years that I just know what's going to happen generally. Yes, that's interesting. That's OK. All right. Well, let's let what, what comes next. You've, you've got this flip chart. You've got all your questions kind of sequenced. What, what, what do you do next? Um, so 
I will then start to think about the kind of practice that I want the students to be doing. And I have a kind of a small bank of resources that I tend to find very reliable all the time. So sometimes there will be uh, I will want them to just do lots of questions on something to make sure that they 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 really get a feel for it. Other times um, I, I've more recently I've been using um, your websites on uh, the variation theory website, for instance, and um, I've got a handful of re- textbooks that for me are tried and tested over the years, the main ones of which are the David Rayner textbooks. And I will draw upon each of these, which of the various sources <coughs> to find questions that I particularly want the students to work on. And uh, oh, Don Stewart is another brilliant one as well. There's some really fabulous activities, especially on order of operations um, yes. in, 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 on, on his website too. So, for instance, sorry, Gemma, can I just check in that? Because I know listeners will be thinking, Right. Make sure, make sure you ask her exactly where she's getting these practice activities <laughs> from, because that's exactly what I'm thinking as well. So just, just to get a list here, if we want, if you're wanting kids to kind of bang through a load of practice, mm-hmm. you're firing up a bit of Don Stewart. And because, again, lis- listeners who um, perhaps have dabbled in Don Stewart's Medium website may know him for his kind of rich kind of problem solving style activities but he also has some lovely sequences of questions yeah. that, that give kids loads of practice but with something else going on there they're not just randomly put together so yeah i'm a big big fan of don's sequencing and um, the rainer textbooks can you give us a, a, the name of a, a couple of those that you're you're a fan of Gemma? the Re- so so these are uh, textbooks by david rainer um they're produced by oxford and they are there's foundation gcse and higher gcse Got it. And are you, again, just to get into the practicalities, are you finding an exercise there and just kind of taking a photo on your phone and projecting it up? Or do they come with PDF copies or are you copying them out? How, no, we've, how got, you... we've, we've got the textbooks in school and we've had them for a long time. So oh, okay. uh, so kids we, have got one each. Yeah, we've they? got class. We've, no, not one each. We, 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 we have 16 tables in a class, so we have 16 books um, and they, they share the book. Got it. And any other sources? I mean, you, you're kind of contractually obliged to mention variationfree.com. So thanks. Thanks for that plug. Um, any other sources where you'd get these kind of practice questions from? Would you, for example, use Jonathan Hall's MathSpot for this particular thing? Or or have you got are you looking for something different with these kind of practice questions? Yeah, no, MathSpot's great. You can get really good uh really lots and lots of questions produced very quickly there so i like math spots um i also tend to very often go back it's very old school but i go back to 10 ticks oh nice and there is so much on there and it's so and and lots of it is very well sequenced Mm. so it breaks it down into so many constituent parts especially for things like solving equations but also for things like order operations and i've been doing standard form recently with year 10 and there's there's questions first of all on converting large numbers in standard form and then converting them from standard form into ordinary and then the same with small numbers and then there's mixed practice and then there is um practice on when if you have a number like uh 59 times 10 to the 7 and you want to put that into standard form there's that there and then there's and then there's putting numbers in order given them a mixture of them in standard and ordinary form and then there's multiplying and dividing and then there's adding subtraction. All of that is there over about four or five pages in Tentix. And it is a bit interesting, Gemma, because like we've been teaching for rough, roughly roughly the same amount of time. Like Tentix, when I first started, it was everywhere. And then about 
probably four or five years into my career, it was you'd essentially be fired if you were seen using Telesex. <laughs> like it, was, it was the worst thing you could have used in the world. And there's a but there's a bit of a resurgence on now because again, like atomization is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. But it essentially does that, right? Exactly as you mm. said, it breaks things down into its finest kind of granulate and then puts them, starts to pull them back together. And there's an absolute ton of questions. It's it's amazing, I think. So here's the thing, though. I remember for a long, long time going into schools and hearing teachers, uh, hearing the heads of departments say to me that they've been told that they are not allowed to buy textbooks because teaching from a textbook is lazy teaching. Yes. And similarly, you can't use something like 10 ticks because if you just put all those questions in front of them, that's lazy teaching. But that's that whole statement is, is just devoid of any kind of thought, because <laughs> if you're trying to teach your students um, really well and you're thinking about what you want them to do when you're not just going to put 5,000 questions in front of them <laughs> you're going to think about which questions you want them to do uh, I, I might take a, a, a section of 10 ticks and I'll say right I want you to do questions 1, 6, 20, this one, this one, this one yes. because those are the ones I can see are going to give the right kinds of practice on the right kinds of things so there's thought that goes into it. But the point is, the actual preparation of the questions has been done for you. So you don't have to spend time doing that. And that's a big thing for me. I think a lot of time teachers feel or have felt, especially in recent history, that they have to spend hours and hours making a PowerPoint or making making something flashy or whizzy or designing some kind of really exciting activity. Because if not, there's this kind of underlying idea that if not, then they're lazy. But what's happening, in fact, is everybody's just reinventing the wheel and everybody's just trying to do things that have already been done for them. And if you can draw upon resources that are already there and you can just use them appropriately and you can think about when to use this one or when mm. to use that one and when to ask certain types of questions, what you're doing, you're not being lazy. You're spending your time thinking about your teaching. Um, and for me, teaching is very much about thinking because because we, we, we well, it's the substance of what we're trying to get the children to do. And it really should form the substance of what we do. We should be thinking about how to get them to learn in the best possible way. So if we're spending our time making PowerPoints and writing out hundreds of questions or designing worksheets, we're not necessarily that that time is draw is is is, is st it's stealing time away from us being able to think about our sequences of lessons and what we want our children to learn when and, and our time is limited no teacher should be expected to work 60 70 hours a week that's just that it's ridiculous nobody should be expected to do that um so what we need to do is get rid of the fluff and get rid of all that extra stuff that for so long we were told that we had to do to make the lessons engaging and enjoyable and all of that and 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 just pair it back and give our teachers time to think about what they're doing properly that's a fascinating <laughs> sounding a bit ranty now no, no, I? <laughs> I like it i love a rant i love a rant on this show um the thing i was thinking there is and i don't know if you'd agree with me on this what i've tried to to, to start doing more these days is in terms of planning is spending less time kind of creating the, the, the resources themselves. Because as you say, there's a, a great deal of world-class stuff out there. But People are paid time... to do these things for us at the end of the day. Absolutely right. 
absolutely right. But but spend the time I save, spend a portion of that doing two things. So the first is, and I, I bang on about this all the time, um, essentially rehearsing and planning out the words I'm going to say to accompany the kind of worked examples and the way I'm going to introduce things because I don't think I'm good enough at that. I think I, I don't plan my explanations. I just kind of see what comes out of my mouth. I plan my examples, but I don't plan my explanations. So I'm, I'm using a portion of time with um, kind of planning out explanations. But the other portion of time I'm using, and this is what I, I wanted your take on, is I think there's a danger sometimes that we kind of glance at these questions, whether they're from 10 ticks or maths bot or wherever, and just kind of glance and think, oh yeah, they'll be fine. And then it's it's only when kids start doing them, and then whenever you're in the lesson yourself and you look at them and think, oh, uh-oh, there's something I didn't anticipate there, or there's a big, there's a gap, there's some concept that's not actually been covered by these questions that can actually lead to a gap in knowledge or, or a misconception developing or something like that. So I'm trying to be much more disciplined in actually working through the, the questions I want my students to do as practice questions. And I'm finding when I do this, I'm starting to spot problems or gaps or things like this and that's really making my planning better now is that is that something that you'd agree with or something that you you do yourself Gemma I definitely agree with that but by not having to think about the fluff for want of a better Mm. phrase you've got time to do that yes because I can imagine lots of teachers sitting there going well when on earth am I going to do this but you do it because like I say my flip charts are just black writing on a plain background of questions (laughs) and titles and I don't I, I've seen people spend hours and hours typing up every every um, yeah. stage in the working out onto a PowerPoint so that they can click a button and present it. It's like, well, don't do that. Just write it on the board. Yes. <laughs> and it seems it seems so obvious. But it, I, I wonder whether people are to sometimes sometimes they're nervous. So they feel like they've got to have everything there for them. Yes. So that it's all planned out in advance. And I can imagine when you're very, very inexperienced in teaching, you, you feel like that's a bit of a safety net. But by doing that, I think what you need to do is, come, if, if that is a worry, is you need to throw yourself in at the deep end and just go for it. Get rid of all of that and write it up as you go along and talk it, uh, and, and think, like you say, in more depth about what you're going to say when. And it's, if it's you if you force yourself to do this, then very you'll very quickly overcome the need for that safety net. It's really interesting you say that because you've just brought to mind uh, again. I thought I got all my shockers out on this show. I thought I'd kind of confessed all, but I've just thought of another <laughs> one now. You, now you're saying that. I'll tell you when my powerpoints were at their worst, and that was two times. One was when I first started teaching, and I used to do exactly that. I used to spend hours animating every flipping step of these worked examples and so on because I thought that was the thing to do. I thought it'd make me better prepared. I thought mm. it would mean that I could then concentrate on other things like behaviour and so on and so forth which I probably needed to do as an NQT, but there was no doubt that it made my lessons worse because there was no flexibility whatsoever in terms of the way this thing was being presented. Um, And also it was taking me flipping hours. But I'll tell you the other time that I did that, and that's when I started teaching further maths A-level for the first time. And again, I didn't feel comfortable with my, it was partly my subject knowledge, but also the way to kind of convey this to the students. So what I would definitely do would be, I would find a PowerPoint on tears or something from Dr. Frost or something like that, something that had already sequenced these worked examples, the steps in the worked examples and so on. 
And I would go back to as if I was an NQT. I'd be kind of clicking through. This is what you do next. This is what you do next. Because it brought me some kind of comfort. My confidence wasn't there to be able to deliver it. And again, the the lesson suffered. I felt better at the time. But the, the kids didn't learn it better. Because there's nothing, I think, more effective than exactly as you say. A question, a blank screen. And then you're doing your thought in front of the kids at, a, at the right kind of pace. You're able to ask the right questions. Because whenever you find yourself thinking that's normally a good time to say to the kids what do you think I'm going to do next or why do you think I've done that and so on and so forth and you just don't get that when you when you're clicking through does that make any sense absolutely yeah I completely agree um it's interesting you mentioned as well about planning your explanations Mm. earlier on I remember on my PGCE, they used to get us to write out our lessons almost verbatim, everything we were going to say. And at the time, I found it. Yeah, yeah. At the time, I found it annoying. Uh, And I think I kind of understood why they wanted us to do it. But I I think I I thought most likely that it was because I was very inexperienced. And at least if I've written out what I'm going to say, I'm not going to stand there and freeze in front of the class. But it was but I can see now with experience and hindsight that it was so much more than that, because by thinking carefully about what you're going to say, it forces you as a teacher to think about the mathematics in so much more depth. And it forces you to think about why you're going to explain something in a certain way. Um, and is that the best way to explain it? Is there another way to do it? If I explain it this way instead of this way, what's going to what, what's that going to lead the, the, the students to think? Yes. And yeah. and by planning out what you're going to say, you you're allowing your your brain just to ponder these things properly. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, if anyone's listening, it is a fascinating thing to do just to just to try and write down the words that you're going to say to explain something um, and and stick to them in the lesson. Because I, I seem to have been working for about 12 years on the philosophy of why say something in 10 words when you can say it in about 3000 words. Because I just, I just keep saying <laughs> I keep saying things over and over again in different ways. And the kids must be thinking, just shut up. Whereas um, I, I interviewed Naveen Rizvi and, and this uh, the Naveen's episode will be out before this. So listeners can, can go and check it out. And she said that one of her kind of big takeaways uh, for her explanations is be let me get this right. Precise and concise, precise and concise. And I really try and stick to this. Keep it short. Keep it simple. And the only way I personally can do that is if I plan that explanation out in advance. I think, yeah, I think that's 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 good practice. And um, Gemma, can, can I just check? So we're we're we've got this document, this this active document. You've got the um, you've got the kind of hinge questions. We'll, we'll stick to calling them the kind of key questions that you want students to be able to do and that are potentially going to reveal misconceptions. You've also now started to think about the practice questions that you're going to give kids. Are you just on a practical level? Are you kind of screenshotting those and banging them into this document? as well is this going to be the kind of all-encompassing working document that you keep in adding stuff to or do they go somewhere separate most of the time um, they probably will go on the screen yeah and part of that is a symptom of the fact that we um, have practically zero budgets these days in school so yes. I can't go printing off loads of worksheets or loads of questions anything like that it will if it can go on the screen it goes on the screen yes um, if it's a reference in the textbook I'll just type on the powerpoint this, yes. this page and this exercise um, just so that it's there because the beauty of this then is the fact that the one I'm talking about I actually first created two years ago which and now I have that document forever 
And mm. every time I teach it with a different class, sometimes there might be slides that I'll skip over because I don't need to with that class. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll add more slides in because there's things that I need to do that I didn't the first time round. But yes. then it just it remains this document. I can write on it and then just I just don't save it at the end. So I don't save all my scribbles. I just have this document with the questions and everything on there. And then I can use it in subsequent years and improve it if I need to and make judgments on how I'm going to use it each time. But it ultimately what it means is the, the planning year in, year out then is significantly reduced. Got it. That makes perfect sense. And can I check as well the um, the hinge questions that, that you've written? Are they also your the questions that you're going to do as worked examples or are the worked example questions, are they something different and have they not come into the thought processes just yet at this point? There's a bit of both. So I will think about the worked examples, first of all, because those are where I'm going to see what kind of misconceptions there are, but also as well as worked examples, I like to do things where I will ask a question to the class and sometimes I'll ask them to do it on their own. I'll give them, say, 30 seconds, a minute or however long to do it on their own. Sometimes I'll ask them to do it in pairs and then I will pick on people or pairs to tell me their answers and I'll write up all the answers uh, and I, sometimes I know that there are going to be lots of answers to these things. So I'll write up all the answers and we'll get people to try and justify why they've given this answer or that answer or why do people think so and so said this one um, and and sometimes what happens is the person who said a wrong answer immediately sees why they've said a wrong answer and they go oh, I want to change now and eventually <laughs> we'll narrow it down or and if I need to I can I can just do a quick show of hands who thinks this one's the right one who thinks that one's the right one and it gives me a good way of seeing what everybody's thinking before I set them loose <laughs> on questions so there's, a, there's an element of work, me doing worked examples, but there's also an element of I want to have this question here so that I can get some. It, 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 it's, for, it's formative assessment at the end of the day, isn't it? I want to see what they're doing and what they're thinking about, what they're understanding before we now, before I let them loose or before we move on. Now, this this is interesting, this Gemma. Um, just to be clear on this, are you th this question where you're asking them to have a go themselves? Is this something that's related to something they've just been taught or just been kind of shown on a worked example? Or is this yeah. or is this isn't kind of an exploratory thing like you're going to give them a question? They've not been taught or anything, but you're using this as a way to you're not using this as a way to kind of see what they know. This is a way of assessing what the, how well they've understood something they've just been taught. Is, is that right? Oh, well, sometimes, because let's take, again, year seven with order of operations. Yeah. They come in from primary school. Have Some of them have been taught the, the, the phrase big mass, the word big mass. Yes, some of them yes. have been taught a little bit about how you do brackets first, for instance, but they might not have heard big mass. They'll all have come in with a different experience. So... My first question will be deliberately designed to try and figure out what they already know. Yes. Now, that's interesting. Let, let's dig a little bit deeper into this. And this it could all be kicking off, Gemma, with this next bit. So let, let's, let's see what happens. Here. Um, what what would you say to the argument that by doing something like that, it's potentially confusing for the kids? Because, again, they've got all these different kind of amounts of background knowledge, prior knowledge and so on and so forth. And, all, and by kind of giving them a question like that before they've been, I, I can completely understand doing that after they've been taught something and modelled something. You, you want to see how well they've understood it. But what would you say to the argument that says that by doing this as a way of kind of checking prior knowledge, what what you're also potentially doing is is kind of 
getting misconceptions out in the open, but also also potentially confusing students with there's three or four different answers on the board. Kids who are confused before and now thinking what what's going on here. There's loads of flipping answers here. Kids who know how to do it are potentially getting a little bit annoyed thinking I just want to crack on I know how to do this one is is there a downside to doing this that it, it kind of takes takes some time to to kind of get all these answers to have this kind of debate have this vote but also potentially it's it's both confusing and frustrating do, do you buy into that at all but I, I can see I can see why that's being said I can um to the argument that it takes time up I'm talking a minute and a half mm. in a lesson. Yes. Um, and for me, I don't, I don't do it all the time. So I will do it at strategic points. And it's generally when I know they will have encountered something like this before. And yes. I know that they will definitely, definitely have um, not quite got it or will have not got the hang of it yet. And order of operations with year sevens is definitely one of those. <laughs> um, so for me, it's, it's important because... I need to know as quickly as I can where to jump in. So maybe there are a handful of students in the class who already know this and they're absolutely fine, but it's not going to hurt them to think about it a little bit longer. Yes, yes. That would be my answer to that one. Um, yes, it does take a little bit of time, but it's a tiny, tiny little bit of time. And what we gain from it is the opportunity for those students in the class to see actually something's going on here because we've all got the same question presented in front of us mm. and there's all these different answers coming out so they might initially look at that and go oh, no, i haven't got a clue now i really don't know but that's okay because i'm about to sort that out and i'm about to go right we're going to strip this back to basics this is why it works the way it does this is why we have to do multiplication and division before addition and subtraction yes that and, makes that yeah. that makes perfect sense i i think the the thing that I don't like, and it's different to what you're saying here, is whenever we almost try to to force kids to to figure out and muddle their way through to to explain in something that we almost don't expect them to know anyway, because it's it's a new topic, it's something that's fresh mm. to them, and that that's something I've done in the past. And the example I give when I'm I'm giving talks at the moment is like calculating an, a, an estimate for the mean of group data, banging a question on the board to a bunch of year eights and saying how do you reckon we do this and it's a big potentially 10 minute discussion where yeah. kids are coming out with all kinds of things and at the end I end up just telling them how to do it anyway yeah. that for me is wrong whereas what you're saying here is different because you know kids have, have seen something like this before you know there's kind of different levels of understanding in the class and you're using that to get a get a sense of, of, of misconceptions of, of their levels of understanding and so on and I think I do the same as you but I think that's when I use diagnostic questions for that to, mm -hmm. just as a way of kind of hopefully possibly collecting the data a kind of a, a little bit quicker and and having had chance to to think carefully about the the possible misconceptions kids may have but i i think we're talking about the same thing there do, do you yeah i think we do i think we are yeah all right, so we're not falling out, Gemma. Things, things are no, looking up. No, not at all. Things. Not at all. <laughs> can I? Can oh, sorry, I was, the only thing I was going to say oh, yes, sorry, when please. you were saying that about the, uh, this estimate of a, of a mean from group mm. data, for instance, um, we were only talking about this in our department meeting last night. And what I think what you're alluding to is the whole guess what's in my head game. Yes. And that I have no time for whatsoever, although I have been guilty of it in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. But just, yeah, it, no time for that now. 
fantastic. Now, whilst whilst we're talking worked examples here, Jeremy, it seems like a good point to ask what yours kind of kind of look like, how how you deliver those. So, if you, if you've planned a worked example in in this document, can you just talk us through the process of of, of what that actually looks like in the classroom? Um. I kind of want to say I work through the example. <laughs> um, I, are, question, are you are you no, are you asking are you asking questions to the kids? Are they copying stuff down as they go? Like I'm obsessed with stuff like this, Jeff. Yeah. So what, what 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 exactly does it look like when you go through a worked example? So they put their pens down and they watch the board, and I will talk them through strategic parts of it mm. and by that i mean i try very hard not to waffle all the way through <laughs> yes so i will sometimes i will just write something up and then i will go this is what i did here and this is what i did here and sometimes i'll write up a line and then i'll go straight to the next line um because maybe something doesn't need any explanation and something i've been trying to work on more recently is this idea of the split attention effect so um mm. if i'm talking over it constantly and i'm writing constantly uh which one do i want them to be focusing yes. on the most and i have to be aware of the fact that if i'm doing two things at the same time then uh, the, their attention is going to be split between those yes. two things so if i can do one thing at a time their attention will be, will be focused on that one thing so I have I've been trying to think very carefully about which bit I want them to focus on, which is why I tend to more often now write something up and then talk about what I've written up yes. rather than talk and write at the same time. It's a big it's a, it's a subtle change, isn't it, Gemma? But it mm. makes a big difference. And it, again, it's why I do my silent teacher first and then the narration afterwards, because again, if I think back to my worked examples in the past and I, I hate thinking about this, but I would be writing talking and the flipping kids would be writing at the same time as well so it'd yeah. be like a three-way split for their attention yeah. and it was no wonder nothing sunk in so yeah i think that's that's a, a really subtle but important change that, mm. to write something without possibly saying anything and then to start the talking and over the top are you are you asking questions at the same time Gemma, or is it you just kind of drawing their attention and, and explaining sometimes if it's something whereby um i think that a step of working they ought to be able able to do themselves they ought to know and i want to see whether they do then i'll ask a question mm. if it's if it's something like we're solving an equation and i get to x equals 15 divided by three i won't do what i used to do which is and what's 15 divided by three so and so because <laughs> i don't need to ask that question that's yeah. it's just wasting time um so i yeah i will ask questions but that depends on whether i think i need to at that point so if it's something that's completely new to them then i don't necessarily want to ask any questions because i would rather show them first and then give them opportunity to try a similar one themselves and then ask questions and then see whether they've followed the process see whether they uh, see what we can draw out of it yes and are you, are you, are they, the kids having a go at the similar one kind of straight after the worked example? And again, what, what's the practicalities of, of what they're writing down? Do they, do they copy down the worked example after you've gone through it and then have a go at their one? And you, what, what, again, what does that bit look like? Again, it depends on the length of the example. Sometimes mm. if it's a quite a long uh, involved procedure, I don't know, something like, um, direct or indirect proportion with algebra something like that's quite a long procedure so i'll want to talk through it and go through it first and i will want them to write down full examples 
something like uh, simple, like an order of operations question that's not too involved. I'll do an example and then and, and they'll watch and then I'll give them a question to do and that will become their example. Mm, got it um, and just before before we move on you said something there that again made me made me cringe for the fact that i used to do this all the time see see if, see if you relate to this Gemma. you know when you said that one about um you finish the the linear equation and it gets to x equals 15 over three and in the past you'd have said to a kid or, or to anybody what, what what so therefore what does x equal and they'd have said x equals five i almost use that i almost used to use that as a way of kind of conning both the kids and myself <laughs> i think that they then knew how to solve an equation mm. so i'd be going so what's x equal and like the kids who was really confused i'd say like josh what's x equal he go x equals five i said brilliant josh you can solve an equation josh doesn't have a flipping clue yeah. like josh does not have a clue about those all those complex steps but because he's contributed to that final piece of it he and I both have this kind of agreement that nobody mentions out loud that you don't have a clue how to do it, but on the surface, it looks like everything's all rosy. Yeah. There's a danger, there's a danger there, isn't there, in, in kind of kidding ourselves that if we don't actually assess or give kids the chance to practice what is actually the important bits, the complex bits, then we can be fooled by just kind of giving these cue-laden answers and mm. cherry-picking the bits that we want kids to contribute to. D does that make sense? Absolutely. And when you were saying it, it, it reminded me of something I said earlier, which is about how I think that teaching is very much a profession and it should be about thinking. And I mean that from a teacher's point of view as well. So if we are so busy doing all sorts of other rubbish, we never stop to think. <laughs> I can't think of a better word for it. We don't, we, we don't get a chance to think about our practice and what we do um, in the classroom yes. and in the moment. So um, something like that, we we just go on default and we, and we do the same thing we've always done and we never stop to question it or analyse it. Yes. And we need opportunity as part of our working day to sit back and go, what did I do there? Why did I do that? Was it the right thing to do? Could I have done it better? Why did I ask that question? Did it achieve what I needed it to achieve? What did I learn from it? Did I learn anything from it? And all these things, but we, that that should be an integral part of our job. And we don't have time to do those kinds of things because of the other stupid stuff that we have to do. Absolutely. But we should have time to do that. We should. And I think rubbish is the exact phrase to use there, Gemma. I, I, <laughs> I like that one. And um, just again, but back to, I, I keep taking us off in, into various places as ever, but just back to your documents. So you've got the um, the kind of hinge questions that, and also the worked examples. You've got the practice questions that you're going to be using. Um, is anything else going into this document before you actually go into, into the lesson itself? Uh, no, I don't think there is. The, the only thing that... The only thing that would come in at certain points then might be more unusual questions, things that get them to think outside the box a bit, problem solving, all those kinds of things. But like I said before, those will come in as we're going along. Mm. And sometimes I will think of something in the lesson and I'll write it on and add like add in a page and write it on there and then. Or I'll think of a, a challenge question during the lesson that's arisen out of something somebody said and I'll add it in there and then. So it it, it has to be flexible and it has yes. to be you have to be able to adapt it as you go along because you need to be able to respond to what's happening. Got it. Got it. And and if if you did do some kind of pre planning of the problem solving stuff beforehand, mm -hmm. what what would be your sources? Where where would you go to for for those kind of questions or activities? 
Oh, that will vary again sometimes. Uh, John Stewart, again, is brilliant. The Median uh, website is absolutely superb. Then very often there's some lovely problem-solving type questions on the new GCSE papers, and they're very good for long-involved type questions. But I wouldn't present it as, oh, look, here's a GCSE question. Um, it's just here's another challenge for you. And I like oh, that's, it. That's interesting. What, what, why is that, Jim? Because, again, I, I've done that in the past, like the big – year eight we finished a, a unit of work here's the big challenge here's actually a question that kids four years older than you will be answering and now look you mm-hmm. can have a go at it um i've never been entirely comfortable with that myself but i'm interested in in, in your reasoning why, why wouldn't you present it as a gcse question because the, because the exam is not why i teach mm. and it's not why i teach maths um the exam is something that happens at the end of um year 11 and it samples the whole domain of the mathematics that I teach um, as a way of rank ordering students in order to give people outside some indication of how well they've grasped what they've learned. But the exam is not what I'm aiming for. What I'm aiming to do is teach as many of my students as I possibly can, as much mathematics as I possibly can. So if in that there is a really lovely question that happens to come from an exam paper, great but I will only use it because it happens to come from an exam paper, not because I am training them to pass an exam, because that's not that's not my purpose in teaching. Um, and but don't get me wrong. I have been guilty, just like you said in the past, of going, oh, look, here's an exam question. We can do this now. And there was a time when we were told that that was best practice and we should yeah, be doing that. That's right. So I'm not saying, you know, I, I'm not trying to be totally ideological here and say that I've never done anything like that because I have. But what I've done in recent years is realised that what by that by doing that, I'm not I, I'm kind of what's the best way to say this? I'm not thinking properly about teaching maths. I'm, mm. I've got the wrong aim in sight. That makes perfect sense. That's that's a really nice way of looking at it. And um, can I ask as well, Gemma, one of the kind of recent trends on this podcast, well, probably over the last 18 months or so, is is guests pointing out that the lesson is the wrong unit of time to think of in, in mm. terms of planning. And um, whenever you've got this kind of document in front of you, are you thinking in terms of, of lessons? Are you thinking that I'll probably get to this point by the end of this hour or 50 minutes or whatever it is? Or, or is it very much fluid? You'll just see where you get to. Well, it's yes, I am thinking about that, but not in the way that I think you, you you're asking here. So because I generally know through experience how long certain things are going to take, mm. I generally know where I'm going to get to in it by the end of a lesson. Yes. But I'm not saying lesson one, I'm going to do this. Lesson two, I'm going to do this. Lesson three, I'm going to do this. Because for for exactly that phrase, <laughs> and I don't want it to become a cliched phrase, but it is brilliant. <laughs> the lesson is the wrong unit of time because I think Mark McCourt uses a great phrase. He calls he talks about learning episodes. Yes. Um, and we need to think about um, an episode of learning and a, or a sequence of learning. And however long that takes, it takes that long. Um, and it might be that I get to a certain point on my flip chart after a lesson and a half. And that's OK. And I will make the judgment whether to carry on or whether to use remaining time to go back over things we've done previously or anything like that. But what I'm not going to do is say I'm going to artificially shoehorn this yes. bit into this hour and this bit into this hour. 
Yeah, that because, makes... That makes oh, sorry, well, I was going to say, also, to kind of state the obvious again, it's really interesting how in this school over here, you can learn something in 50 minutes, but in that school over there, it takes an hour and 15 minutes because that's the difference <laughs> in the times in their lessons. And it, it's very artificial. That is that is interesting. I like it. And can I ask as well, um, in terms of kind of retrieval, there's kind of two bits to this. Um, I'm interested in your lessons um, where retrieval of, of of kind of prior concepts comes into play so let, let's ta- let's tackle that first do you have other kind of fixed starters that you do i mean you mentioned the maths box kind of mixed topic starter or, or low stakes quiz um is that something does that happen every lesson is it a certain amount of times per week and are, is what else what else do you do if anything to to, to make sure kids are retrieving um, th- things from knowledge that aren't just directly related to the current topic, in this case, order of operations. There's all sorts of stuff we do. Um, in year seven and eight, we do we do the numeracy ninjas booklets, as I'm sure plenty of your listeners do as well. Um, and the reason we do those as starters is because it's a, it's a good way to just set routine. So the students come in and they know that this is what we do at the start of every lesson Mm. that has a use that's not directly related to the mathematics because of course the other huge facet of what we do is making sure that we have smoothly running lessons with minimal behavior issues and all these kinds Mm. of things um putting the mathematics aside so having consistent routines is extremely helpful in that so i really like having these fixed um, activities at the start of a lesson as a way of reinforcing routine and and reinforcing expectations. We have the expectation that the majority of work in our lessons is done in silence unless the teacher allows you to work otherwise. So Mm. silence is the default. And by having something like that at the start, when they just come from the other side of the school and they've run from science or art or whatever, it just reinforces that. So that's important. But then I also like the added benefit of the fact that they go over things that we have done previously over and over and over again. So it's just lots of extra practice and lots of extra practice is a good thing. And it takes five minutes. So it's really short. Um, when we get to the point that we've exhausted the nearest ninjas and they don't need to do that anymore, we, we different people do different things. Um, so I don't, as head of department, I don't mandate that people do certain things apart from let's do the nearest ninjas in year seven and most of year eight i've got for instance the top set in year eight at the moment and we're not going to carry on much past the next few weeks because they really don't Mm. need it anymore really don't whereas lower sets still need that practice so then their Mm. teachers have chosen to carry on but we have things like maths box where you project uh, the 10 questions onto the board and those are very nicely graded as in um, they, they increase in difficulty of the topics presented and they do things that cover primary maths all the way through to higher, very advanced higher GCSE maths. So those are really useful as well. Um, we some teachers will use things like Corbett maths, you know, the five a days. Yes. Not necessarily using the whole five. I mean, the one thing I found is sometimes the five a days take too long because mm. some of the questions are quite involved. So maybe yes. they'll just do a couple of questions. Um, and do you know what? You don't have to do that at the start of every lesson. So I won't necessarily do it at the start of every single lesson. It varies from class to class. Um, what I don't like is when people say you have to have a starter at the beginning of a lesson mm, because, yes. again, it's, it's artificial. And I don't like being told that I must do certain a, a, something a certain way because 
and for no other reason than because 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 <laughs> reasons mm. um what what i what i want to be able to do sometimes is finish teaching my year eight class one day and they come in the next day and i go right let's carry on you've got to question yes. such and such carry on and that's, that's nothing wrong with that absolutely nothing wrong at all if they need to do that they need to do that it's not a problem so that's interesting. So just on that, if it was a lesson where you wouldn't have one of these kind of retrieval things at the start, it would literally just be a continuation. You wouldn't do any other kind of way of starting the lesson. It'd just be whenever all the kids are down and settled, we're just cracking on with where we got to last lesson. Is, is that right? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes it might just be you were in the middle of this activity and you need more time. Carry on. Sometimes it might be, right, we, we got to this point last lesson. Now I'm going to teach you this bit, which leads directly on. Mm. Um, but what I really don't like is that whole kind of formulaic, you must do a five minute activity first and then you must do this next. If it's beneficial and if there's a valid reason for doing it, then great, then do it. But if you're doing it just because you've been told you've got to, then you need to stop and question and think, well, yeah, but what's the benefit here? And why why is that so much better than just picking up where we left off last time? That's interesting, that, isn't it? Because I guess one of the kind of benefits to these fixed starters is it helps settle the kids down. It's part of the routine. Yeah. If the kids arrive early, they've got something to be getting on with. Is it is the reason that that isn't a problem for, for you in your school because the kids behave well, they, the expectations are there, the culture's there and, and so on and so forth. Is it, it? It's not a problem, is it, if the, the lesson doesn't have this kind of formal start to it, if that makes sense? Nine times out of ten, it's not a problem. We, of course, we have more difficult classes than others. Of course we do. But the majority of classes um, and the majority of students in the majority of classes understand the culture and respect the culture and understand why we have it the way we do. And they're on board with that. So generally, it's not a problem. Got it. That makes perfect sense. And just on that as well, do you, is it for the same reason you wouldn't have any fixed plenary that you do or anything at the end of the lesson? Is it just wherever, you know, wherever you get to, that's the end of the lesson? Or do you have some way of kind of wrapping things up e each lesson? I used to have plenaries. I used <laughs> to think so hard about, you know, oh, let's get let's do i don't know quiz the students you you look write down five questions for this person and this volunteer is going to come out and answer them and all that kind of stuff and it i got rid of that a long time ago because it was just time wasting again um what i tend to do what i will again it depends on what's appropriate and that's the mm. thing that's the key thing is what you're doing going to help the learning here or are you doing it just because you think you've got to do it so um if for instance i want to kind of wrap something up i might ask some challenge questions or give them something really unusual to go away and think about or so it, you know sometimes i will end it with a very purposeful activity other times we will just come to the end of the lesson and we'll go yeah. see, see you tomorrow <laughs> and, and 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 i think the thing is that's okay that's not a problem. And, and that's an important I, I feel like I want to say that because for such a long time and across in schools across the country, people have been told that that's not OK, but it is. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, again, I guess the counter-argument would be, to, to play devil's advocate, that you, you want to leave the lesson with a sense of what the students know and don't know so it can better inform what you're going to do next lesson as opposed to, yeah. and I'm not saying I'm not saying you, you're doing this or teachers, uh, anyone's doing this, but as opposed to just kind of plowing on, just going through it, going through the motions, blah, 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 without getting a sense of whether kids are getting it or not. So I guess that is the kind of argument for for a plenary that gives you a snapshot, a kind of assessment for learning tool, for, for want of a better phrase. Um, what do you think to that? So having said everything I just said, lots and lots of my lessons and lots and lots of our lessons in my school will end with an exit ticket. Mm. And the reason we end it with, uh, and, and not always end with an exit, exit, exit ticket, we might do them at a, very, a different point during the lesson, but roughly we aim for about 50% of our lessons to have an exit ticket in them. And that's because that is, it does, it does exactly what you said. It helps us to get some kind of assessment of what the children have or haven't learnt. Um, so it works as a really good formative assessment tool. It helps to inform what we want to do next very well, because you mentioned something earlier about uh, with, with the solving equations. You mentioned about misleading yourself into thinking that everybody had learned something because one person had given a certain answer um, with something like an exit ticket. It's not the only way to do this, but it's a very good way to do it. Something like an exit ticket. You write down three, two or three questions that increase in difficulty based on what you've been doing in the lesson. Um, and the, the students have five minutes or so to answer it. They hand the pieces of paper in. You flick through them and you see exactly what they can and can't do after the instruction they've just received, mm. which helps you to know where to go next. And it helps you to yes. know very clearly because you can see you, you, you get the sample, you get the, the sample of the entire class rather than just the few that wants to put their hands up or the few that you picked on. And you see all sorts of different misconceptions and different issues, depending on how carefully you construct the questions you give them. So you want to deliberately ask questions on the exit tickets that are designed to check understanding if I gave an exit ticket and everybody got it all right, it would be useless and there would have been no point in really doing it as an exercise. So I want to know where the understanding breaks down. So it's, it's, roughly 50 percent of my lessons will actually end with one of those. But again, I'm doing it because it's got a really useful purpose. Yes. That is interesting, that Gemma, because exit tickets is one of those things as well that you may have experienced this in your career that have kind of come into fashion, gone out of fashion and are kind of coming in a little bit and um, uh, back again. Now, mm. it was interesting you say there that you um, that if you ask something that everybody gets right, then it was it, it was pointless asking it. And um, are you writing these kind of. Uh, have you, are you pre-planning these? Or do you know what the exit ticket's going to be if you're going to use them before the lesson? Or are you kind of getting a sense of what's going on and then writing these down? And if it's the latter, if you write them in within the lesson, what's the practicalities of, again, just how the kids get them, if, if that makes sense? Is mm. it projecting on the board, kids doing them on a bit of paper? What does it look like, these exit tickets? It depends on the questions we're doing. If it's something like, uh, let's say, transformations, I will yes. have them pre-printed because well, for obvious time, and logistical reasons um if it's something like solving equations i'll make a judgment during the lesson depending on where we've got to what i think i want to know what i think i want to find out where my hunches are and i will give them um, a sheet of blank a5 paper write the three questions on the board and they just write on this blank paper exit ticket and their name copy out the questions and do them got it 
Got it. Um, can I ask as well, Gemma, we were talking about retrieval before, and I mentioned retrieval of kind of prior knowledge that, that, that kids have done and other topics, and you mentioned those in the starters. Um, of course, the other kind of type of retrieval is is where you, you're directly building on what you've done the previous lesson and the lesson before and so on, and kind of integrating or interleaving those concepts into the, the latter lessons within this sequence. So is that something that you're deliberately doing when you've, you've taught them the, the four operations of um, within order of operations when you then move on to indices once you've done the basics of indices do then the four operations come into the mix there and then when you do the third thing both indices and the four operations come in is that something that's a feature of these sequences of lessons yeah you can't see this i'm nodding quite <laughs> 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 yeah. so what happens is um there's elements of it in different ways so something like the order operations it needs to build up and it gets gradually and increasingly more and more complex and it brings and, and it kind of it, it's like a pyramid going up and up so yeah you you will learn about indices and how the indices work and then you'll bring in the four operations and you'll make the questions increasingly hard but still within the realm of indices and four operations and mm. then we'll talk about brackets and I, I, I don't know whether you were going to mention this in a bit but I, I'm, I'm kind of changing my opinion on the way we think about things like the order of operations and brackets but yes. we'll, we'll introduce brackets and um and then we'll bring in we'll just start off with just simple use of brackets with four operations but then we'll bring in indices and it's always building up and building up and then when i think that i'm happy that they've really got to grips with this order of operations then I'll bring in other things like we did a module of a few months previously on calculations of decimals. So we'll do order of operations questions for decimals. And then after order of operations, we go on to a unit on negative numbers. So once I'm happy that they can calculate with negative numbers, we'll do questions that involve the order of operation, order of operations with negative numbers. And then similarly, when we go on to our fractions unit and we've done the four, op the four ops with fractions, We'll do negative fractions and we'll do order of operations with fractions in it. And we'll just gradually bring everything in and try and kind of knot it all together. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, again, I don't know if you're the same as me, Gemma, but, and this makes me sound really bad, but I never used to do this, you know. I was very much teaching things in isolation. It's like yeah. two weeks on fractions, two weeks on the... First off, are you in the same boat as me? Is, is totally, this something yeah. that you didn't... Oh, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> totally, I don't feel quite yeah. as bad. That's good. And the second part of that is the um, whether you call it curriculum or scheme of work or, or whatever phrase you use, that's the key to this, isn't it? Like, you've, the sequence, if the sequencing just makes this so much easier, easier and um, if that's well thought through so on that and um, what do you do for your kind of your scheme of work do you have a kind of in-house one that you've created or do you follow a particular um kind of well-known scheme of work yeah it's in-house uh i spent a long time back in about 2015 16 reading just before i became head of department reading about lots of people's ideas on it read read people like mark mccourt and Bruno Reddy and lots of others. And I remember hearing Bruno talk on your podcast, actually, while I was out on a run and thinking, oh, yeah, that's great. I really like that. I really like that. So I tried to build it on some. Oh, and, and who's the other one? Um, Will Emony uh, with the yes. Numeracy Ninjas. Yeah. So I tried to build it based on ideas that I liked from a, a, a range of people and things like the work of the learning scientists who talk about things like interleaving and retrieval practice and all these things. So I took those ideas and what I tried to do was sequence um, all of the kind of broad objectives across year seven to 11 into what I thought felt like um, 
a, a good working sequence so that things always built upon what came previously. Mm. Some things I, it felt to me like they had to go in a certain order. So especially at the start of year seven, that there is very deliberately the way it is. So we start with um, the four operations with integers and decimals and we move on to um, powers, roots and primes. And in that we start to talk about HCF and LCM. And then we move on to order of operations and then negative numbers and then fractions, which includes the four operations on fractions, which traditionally is not something I would have done until about year eight or year nine normally. So we do that um, and then we look at estimation and then we look at using a calculator and we we have a a handful of lessons specifically on using a calculator efficiently and properly. And at that point, we bring in things like percentages and then other things that that when we allow them to use a calculator as well. Um, but the whole now that's interesting that that's number. It's all number, right? So yeah. Again, that would be something that I wouldn't have done in the past. It no. would have been let's do a bit of number, bit of geometry, bit of algebra, blah, blah, blah. But you, you've made a deliberate decision there to, to do the number. Is, is that right? I have. And it's because. When I was thinking about it, for me, it felt like it it just underpinned so much else. And mm. I wanted them to spend a long time on it and to to go into it in, in a lot of depth before we moved on. And, and going back to the idea of sequencing, there are some things. When, what, what I did basically was I got loads of post-it notes and I wrote, or, and slips of paper and I wrote all of these topics and subtopics down. <laughs> and I just tried to put them in order. Uh, yes. And I realised that some things have to come after other things and, and, and other topics could go anywhere. Something yes. like scatter graphs, you can put that wherever yes. you want. Um, some things uh, will have a number of prere- prerequisites. Um, some things kind of could go alongside others. So there are times where the, the order of um, the curriculum that I d- designed, for, it goes from year 7 to 11. There are times where the order of it could be different. Um, but there are times where I, I'm quite certain that it has to go that way. Um, mm. and, and it's a working document. So it is something that I produced. But over the this is now the third year of it, I very regularly ask the teachers in my department what their thoughts are on it. Did we have too long on something? Did we have not long enough on something? So should something appear again elsewhere? Should it be moved elsewhere and we've kind of added units in and changed it so it's 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 an evolving and a working document but there are some underlying principles that that inform how i want it to develop got it and i'm always always fascinated Gemma, about again the just the practicalities of, of, of what it looks like is it an excel document that's shared on like the school system and do you have as well as obviously the name of the topic and how long um you advise staff to spend on it do you also have links to resources uh, websites and so on and so forth just how in depth do you go with the with the schema work so what we've got first of all is um i designed my once i once i finished with the post-it notes i put things into units so we've got unit n1 um and n2 and the one i was just talking about with order operations is n5 for instance right. so we have an excel document that has four tabs on it so the first tab is number and proportion and then there's algebra and then there's um geometry and then there's statistics and probability Ability, mm. And it lists each of the units and the kind of sub objectives or subtopics in it. 
So something like negative numbers, N6, might start with um, like N6.1 is uh, ordering numbers. Um, N6.2 would be addition and subtraction of negatives, mm. and N6.3 would be multiplication and division of negatives and so on. And N6.5, for instance, might be order of operations with negative numbers. So it just lists what the, the things are that are to be covered in this unit in the in the broadest and simplest terms. Um, then, as a separate Excel document, um, every year I have uh, a document that has every week of the year going down the left. And across the top, I've got year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10, year 11. By the time we get to year nine, we've got year nine higher and year nine foundation. So it kind of right. splits a bit there. And in week one, it will say start unit such and such. And then say in week six, it might say end unit such and such. So they know. So the teachers know that they have this block of time in which to cover that unit. And I don't try and constrain it by half terms because that changes, of course, every year. And it's this idea of going back to what we said about a lesson being the wrong unit of time. You can extrapolate that and a half term is, is the wrong unit of time to force, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. a certain section of work <laughs> into. So I just say, well, this unit is going to be four weeks or three weeks or whatever. So this is where we start it. This is where we end it. And then I also in there say where we're going to have assessments and which units they're going to be on. Got so on. that's the kind of general. This is how we're going to fit everything in in time document. Yes. And. Uh, so what I then did, the very first year we did this, I have a wonderful lady in my department who I spent a long time chatting to about it. And she said, why don't we set up? She said, people are going to find this hard because when you've been used to teaching three lessons on order of operations and now you've got three weeks, they're not going to know what to do with the time. So mm. she said, why don't we do some more detailed documents where we say this is what a typical series of 12 lessons could look like on this topic. Yes. So. She was fabulous and she spent ages producing these things with me. Um, the one thing I found recently is we've got to be careful with those because some people can get tempted to think, well, I've got to do lesson one and then lesson two and then lesson three. Uh, yes, and I've got yes. to stick to that rigidly. And that wasn't how it was intended. What it's supposed to be is if you're not sure what this might look like, then this could be what it would look like. But please don't think that you've got to do it like this because I don't want to plan out everybody's lesson by lesson. Because if I do that, how are they going to respond to the class that's in front of them? Yes, it's a fine line, isn't it? Gemma? Mm. It's, it's, tr it's tricky. And again, th this has been one of my kind of internal debates I've been having myself and I change my mind everyone I, I speak to. So when I spoke to um, kind of Greg Ashman and he first introduced me to the idea of kind of say, almost centrally planned lessons within a department, my immediate reaction was, no, that's horrendous. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, actually, that makes a lot of sense, particularly for, for less experienced teachers, but also for more experienced teachers, just to benefit from kind of the collective wisdom of, of others. And then just the, just the last episode, I was, I was interviewing Naveen Rizvi, as I've mentioned, and her lessons are essentially scripted. Like she's written down the words that the, to the T, wow. the exact words that she's going to say in these booklets that the kids have. And I thought, flipping heck, I don't, I don't know if I'd go that far. But again, there is this fine line, isn't there? But you want, you want a structure. You want a well thought through way of way of teaching something that again relies that has been produced by you with your vast experience combined with your other colleagues but at the same time you you want teachers as you say i think you've hit the nail on the head there you don't want them to be a robot in the class you want them responding and being flexible to to the needs of the kids but 
it's a real tough balance to, to strike, isn't it? It is. And then this is possibly why uh, I, I can kind of see how these two things can work together, though, this idea of almost scripting something but or, and the idea of uh, having freedom. Because if you take, say, what we were talking about initially that led to this, which was me talking about my flip charts and how mm. for a whole unit I have, say, 30 pages, for instance, with the questions and where I think it will progress. There's no reason. Well, I, I save those in our central area. So each it, it, on our um, computers, we have the maths department area and we've got a folder for each unit and people save their resources in there. So if they find something they like, it goes in their worksheets, PowerPoints, anything. So there's, you know, people have saved Dr. Frost stuff in there, for instance, and all this kind of thing. Yes. Um, and but I've saved my flip charts in there and which means anybody can use them. So if somebody wants to. Um, go with my flip chart they might actually look at that as a sequence and go well I've got the top set now and I don't think they need to do this page or this page because they've got that already and they can just skip through and do but the 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 process and of the whole thing is planned and how people use it is then where where they have freedom and I, I don't know how many of my staff do look at these flip charts I create maybe none of them do I don't know but they're there in case they want to (laughs) That's interesting. That, that's fantastic. Um, last couple of questions on, on, on planning a lesson, Gemma. And the, the, the biggies, I, I do apologise for this. Um, the first is just assessment for learning. We've, we've kind of touched upon it um, throughout, but do you have any kind of definite ways that you're getting a sense of how your kids are getting on? You mentioned exit tickets kind of towards the end or even kind of partway through a lesson. But I'm thinking also of things like mini whiteboards and kind of show of hands, all this kind of thing. What, what are your ways of, of getting a sense of how your kids are understanding and um, the work that they're working through do you know we discussed this very thing in our department meeting last night and we talked about mini whiteboards and the general consensus seemed to be we love the idea of mini whiteboards but the practicalities of them it make them a bit of a pain in the neck yeah i'm glad you've said that go on t- tell me a bit more about <laughs> that that's interesting go on well th- they're great because you can ask a question you can see everybody's answer straight away but the pens mm. run out and yeah. they they the, the temptation is there to scribble. And even if you get them to put them on the floor, they're still, you've got the picking up and the putting down and the, these little scraps of, of cloths to clean them get ended up, get end up all everywhere and they get pen all over their fingers. And it, there's all these little things that actually make it not quite as idyllic as it seems to be when you stop and think about it in the yeah. first place. That's interesting. So is it a no go for mini whiteboards? Well, some people in my department prefer them, uh, or do still like to use them some uh, and some people have just said I, I, I can't go there because it's too it's too much faff um, uh, so you know that's their choice we have them if they want to use them they can use them I have sometimes used them and again it depends on the class and it depends on how well I think the class will respond to them I do quite like them at a level mind when i know that the the, the students are a little bit more responsible and they're not going to mess around with them on the whole um they they can be really useful there yeah i think certainly when i've seen them at their least useful is when the kids aren't used to them and they're seen a bit as a bit of a kind of a gimmick yeah it's like oh nice one the whiteboards are out let's mess around with these when they're the best is when it's just the norm yeah when it's just the norm but again there's still no getting away from yeah the pens the the little dusters i've seen a few people have them kind of stuck on the back of chairs like a little pocket where that's got the the whiteboard the pen the rubber and so on and so forth that's quite nice but Mm. yeah i think there, there is that 
that trade-off, isn't there? There's massive benefits when they work well, but it's, it's finding a way to, to make that work. Yeah. And can I ask Gemma, what, what do you do instead then? How would you get, a, if you wanted to quickly get a sense of how well your kids are understanding something, what, what would be your technique? Um, my, the thing I've, I mentioned already about asking a question and giving them 30 seconds mm. to answer it and then seeing what answers we've got around the room, that one I do yes. very, very regularly. That's interesting. Um, the can I ask you another massive one here, Gemma? And this this is big, and it's the thing that I, I, I'm on. I, you mentioned you had a little rant before. Um, I am <laughs> specialising at ranting about this. Any anyone who's unfortunate enough to invite me in to speak to their staff, this is what they're hearing about these days, and that's my views on differentiation. So I just wonder. Um, is it something that you're conscious of in your mind in your mind when you're planning these sequence of lessons and when you're in the lesson yourself are you thinking how do i differentiate and and if you are what are your ways of differentiating throughout these lessons uh, no i'm not thinking that actually not at all and i used to i used to think about it so much and now i don't think about it at all and it's so liberating <laughs> and it's made not a scrap of difference to the attainment of our students since we stopped thinking about differentiation in fact all that's happened over recent years is our gcse results have remained consistently good and if anything they've started to rise a little bit and and not thinking about differentiation um, has not uh, had any negative effect whatsoever on that. And I know that GCSE results, as I said before, you know, that's not our main aim, but that is the way that sure. we're measured. And that is one way of seeing how well you're doing on the whole. Um, but it, yeah, differentiation or the, the, the lack thereof has not made a difference. Now that's, but I need to qualify that because mm. what I don't want is for anybody to listen to that and go, oh, well, then she obviously isn't thinking about the children in front of her <laughs> and she's not thinking <laughs> about what they can and can't do. But in fact, what's happening is entirely the opposite because what's happening is I'm thinking in more depth about it. And I'm thinking, well, by the end of this sequence of lessons and then narrowing it down by the end of this hour or this the next two hours, what I need everybody in my class to be able to do in order to move on is this so yes. how do I design my lessons and what we do to make sure they can all do that? And if there are some that get there sooner than others, then there are all sorts of things that I can and will do. I might, for instance, uh, set ex uh, challenge questions that get them to think more deeply um, or think about nuances of ideas that they might not have considered otherwise. Mm. Um, I might uh, sometimes I have absolutely no problem with somebody who understands something spending an extra 10 minutes doing some more questions on it because it's <laughs> 10 minutes and that extra practice is not going to hurt them. It's, it's, it's going to be nothing but good. So, yeah, I remember agonizing before over. Oh, no. So and so they, I know they're going to get through really quickly. What on earth am I going to do to give, give them to do? And now I think, well, that's OK. They can do a little bit more. It's not a problem. It's not going to hurt. But that comes in a wider context of thinking so much more carefully about what everybody's doing um, and where I want them all to be at. And the one thing I particularly really dislike now is the um, and I've not done it for a long time and I'm, gl I'm glad it went a while ago. But it's this idea of differentiated learning objectives and all yeah. and most and some. Because for me, the minute you set a lesson out and you go, well, some children in this class are only going to be able to do this. You're putting a ceiling on them. So I think it's having the opposite effect because people would used to present differentiation to us as a way of making sure that everybody had access to what you're teaching. Whereas actually, um, if you approach it in the way I just mentioned, what's happening with the almost um, um, some, what's happening is that you're putting a ceiling on 
and a certain number of children in your class and you're saying i i I automatically expect that you're not going to be able to do as well as so and so absolutely and especially if you're making the decisions of who those kids are before the lesson you're asking for trouble because again you'll inevitably have if you're anything like me you'll you'll have got it wrong mm. kids will surprise you and and it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy you expect kids to struggle and then they end up struggling um, and also if you're making that decision in the class then you're basing it on pretty dodgy evidence. Like, you know, a couple of kids answered a couple of questions quite mm. well. So all of a sudden you panic and give them some extension work and so on and so forth. It's, it's it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's fascinating is, is differentiation. Um, now, Gemma, something's happened here during this interview. And it's only happened, I would say, well, I'll tell you the people it's happened to. <laughs> Dan, Danny Quinn, Chris Bolton and Naveen Rizvi. And that is, um, I have a set of questions to ask you. And we've spent two hours and I've asked you the first question. How do you plan a lesson? So I'm going to I'm going to ask you. I've, I've got one more question I want to ask you here, but I'm going to ask you. Will you return to the podcast for part two, Gemma? Because as a little teaser trailer for the things that we haven't discussed, I've got a whole series of questions on running a maths department, which when I interviewed um, Amir Arazu, it was one of our most popular podcasts because people were fascinated, whether they're actual heads of departments or aspiring heads of department, or just kind of teachers who want to hear how other departments are run. They love anything like that. And I love anything like that. So I've got a load of questions on running a department. We've got absolutely nowhere near them. And then we've got the small matter of, yeah, absolutely brilliant book that we haven't gone anywhere near how to enhance your mathematics subject knowledge you've also managed to tease about that you've completely changed the way that you teach order of operations i haven't even got around to asking you that and then we've got all your reflections to do so Gemma, before asking my final question will you return to the podcast for a part two all right greg Good. Have it. I mean, the thing, beauty of that is you couldn't really say no because it's, it's no. live on air. So that, that's, the way I like to, that's the way I like to kind of trick people into that. So that's fantastic. Um, and genuinely, I think that will be a fascinating conversation about focusing on those three areas. But let me ask you one final question before, before I, I let you go. And that is one of my you've written a load of blog posts that I've absolutely loved. But one kind of resurfaced on Twitter um, not so long ago. And I think you wrote it. Probably two years ago now, I think. I think it was 2017. And that was your one on silence. Yeah. And I thought it was. I thought it was an absolutely wonderful post, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes from this episode. But I just wanted just to end this this part of the conversation because it's directly relevant to to how you run your lessons and what they look like. Can you just talk us through um, your changing views on on kind of silence in the classroom and, and what what you think now, if that's all right? I think I used to be a little bit scared by silence. Um, maybe, I mean, don't get me wrong, I liked it and I loved it when the children were working silently, but it also made me worry whether or not they were doing the right things. And part of that came from messages that we received in school very regularly and from all over the place about how um, they need to be talking about their work and discussing what's going on and talking through their thinking. And talk was seen as such, uh, it was seen as almost the most important way to learn, you know, uh, explaining things to others was supposed to make you learn it more, learn it much better. And I... I didn't really I never really liked group work because I didn't like the fact that people it was so easy for the students to go off task and for them to not really do what you wanted them to do. Um, and also they might be very, very well behaved, but never actually do anything because they would just hide behind the ones who were more vocal and the ones who were more confident and all these kinds of things. Yes. So all of those things I started to think about. Um, and 
I was very lucky because I'd always taught well, for the majority of my career taught in this school um, and in our maths department, our head of department had absolutely no issue with us asking the children to work in silence. So I was very lucky there because it was never seen as completely taboo. But when I started to think about it in more detail, I realised that actually, I think for me, silence is important for so many things. So the, the first and most obvious one um, that wrote that sprung to mind was behaviour. And the fact that if the students know that they are not allowed to talk, then it's much, much harder for them to misbehave. Much, much harder. They have to be yes. very creative about it <laughs> if, they're, if they're in silence. <laughs> and, 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 and the majority of them will therefore just give in and <laughs> do what you ask them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing. I think, I think it's very important for that. Um, and once you've established the, the general ethos of we work in silence, unless I allow you to otherwise, it means that the periods of discussion can be much more productive because mm. they, they understand that they're there for a reason and that they are time limited and therefore they need to make the most of them and do them well. So by having a default of silence, you autom- not automatically, but you, you're more likely to have more productive discussion when you do allow it. Um, so apart from just behaviour, um, it's really important for concentration. You, I, if I was, I, I think I remember write, I wrote on that blog post that um, I was sat writing it on my settee in a, in a quiet lounge. That's and right, yes. if I'd been trying to do it with the TV on or with the kids running around playing, I would have been so much less productive. It would have taken me longer to do. It would have been harder to think about the ideas I was trying to think about. And that's because there are distractions. And it comes back to the split attention effect that we mentioned earlier. If you have silence, you are much more likely to be able to focus on the right things. Now, of course, you could have students sat there in silence doing nothing and not thinking about anything of course you could but I think that's you're less likely to have the problem of them not thinking than in silence than you are Mm. if they're talking or if they're in in groups and they're allowed to talk I think it's much more likely if they're if they're talking Um, and I kind of came to the point where I approached it a bit like Pascal's wager Um, Pascal's wager for anybody who doesn't know is where Pascal tried to weigh up the existence of God and he said if uh, if God does exist and I do believe in him great I'm going to heaven Um, (laughs) and if he doesn't exist and I do believe in him well doesn't matter either way but if he if he doesn't exist and I don't believe in him no problem but if he doesn't exist and I if he does exist and I don't believe in him, then we've got a problem because I'm going to hell. And that's yes. really bad. <laughs> that's the one I want to avoid. Um, and it's not scientific. And there are there are reasons. Uh, there are lots and lots of good theological and uh, psychological reasons why you can argue that actually Pascal's wager is, is, is not very valid. But I decided to take it as a way of approaching silence in the classroom. So what I did was I, I thought about I thought about whether or not I allow or disallow talking um, as for the majority of time. Yes. And the effect of doing such a thing so or the effect of talking on learning so if talking has a good effect on learning and i allow it then great um if it has a good effect and i don't allow it then that means that the pupils will miss out on the benefits of discussion so what about if talking has a nil effect on learning well then it doesn't matter at all whether or not i allow it Mm. but if talking has a bad effect on learning there and i allow it then they will learn less due to talking. Yes. Um, 
And if it has a bad effect on talking and I don't allow it, then they will learn more. So for me, kind of some trying to kind of weigh it all up, it struck me that ultimately, either way, if I just say the majority of the time you are working in silence, I am more likely to have students thinking harder, working harder and therefore doing better. So that was where that was the conclusion that I came to, really. I think it was, it was as I say, it was, a, it was a br- absolutely brilliant post, and I think definitely for split attention effect, I think that was massive. And um, I, I, I um, when I when I give talks, and, and luckily when people have read my book, and I advocate kind of silent teacher and working in silence, one of the things that that often comes back is particularly students who have English as an additional language or students who are autistic, they are really kind of vulnerable mm. in these kind of noisy environments. They find it hard to follow the conversation it can be quite intimidating it can induce anxiety and so on and so forth so for that reason definitely but i'll tell you the bit i i, I really that, that i hadn't considered before Gemma, until until i read your post which i thought was really really powerful was the fact that when you therefore do allow discussion they make more of it students think well she must be allowing this for a reason yeah so let's buy into it more and i think that's something that i certainly hadn't considered before and i think i think that's that's re- yeah that that's nice i think that was lovely so Gemma, as i say i've I, I forced you i've forced you to to kind of sign a verbal agreement to come <laughs> back on the show but there'll be a riot if you don't because as i say we've got to do running a maths department talk about your book do your reflections and your big three as well but i tell you what that has been one of my favorite discussions in, in terms of planning a lesson i thought it was fascinating two hours you've taken us through thinking about the sequences of lessons lessons on on order of operations and it's just been fascinating to go into the finer detail with you so i hope that hasn't been too painful a process for you Gemma, and i cannot wait for you to return to the podcast no, i've thoroughly enjoyed it So there you have it. There was part one of my conversation with Gemma Sherwood. I hope you enjoyed that one. I know you will have done. And I hope you got as much out of it as I did. And as I say, Gemma will be returning to the podcast in the near future to talk about her wonderful book and also the challenges and her little tips for running a maths department. But if you've got any questions based on what you've heard so far for Gemma, then drop me an email or send me a tweet and I'll ask them to it in part two. But anyway, what about takeaways from part one from this? Well, two big ones really from me. The first is about silence. Um, It really is a wonderful blog post that that Gemma wrote about this. Um, And she wrote it about a year ago, um, a year ago now. And it's it's just something that echoes my thoughts so much, but but written in a far better way than I ever could. Um, And one thing that really struck me about this, and we, we spoke about it in the interview, but I just want to return to it briefly here is that if students learn that silence is the norm or the default, then they make the most out of the non-silence. And it's one of those things that sounds so obvious, but I'd, I'd not picked up on that. I'd not picked up on that <laughs> until I spoke to Gemma or until I read, read a blog post. But it's so true, right? Because if students are just used to being able to talk left, right and centre when they're working through things, then they don't make the most of that time. It's just, well, this is the norm. Yeah, we can talk. And yeah, sure, we'll sometimes talk about maths, but sometimes I'll say, did you watch that on TV last night? Have you listened to this? And so on and so forth. 
But if silence becomes the norm, then one of two things happens. Firstly, I think students make the most out of the non-silence so that whenever you say, okay, for the next two or three minutes, you can talk to the person next to you. Then I think kids start to think, okay, well, I best make the most of this time. If, if sir or miss is saying that now I can talk, there must be a really good reason for it. So actually this problem I've been struggling with, I'm gonna ask the person next to me because I'm not, I might not get this time again now. So I'm gonna make the most of this time. So that's the first thing that happens. But also I think students make the most out of the silence because the silence is just like a weird thing that kids just do like once every, I don't know, once every couple of lessons. Perhaps it's just during silent teacher or perhaps every now and again when, when it's noisy, the teacher says, and I've been here myself, says, all right, for the next five minutes, it's silence. Then in that latter case, it's seen as a punishment, not as a learning tool. It's like, okay, you've been noisy, so your punishment is you're now going to be silent. So it's not beneficial to you students, it's just to give me a break. Or if it's just done as a kind of a one-off during a bit of silent teacher or something like that, then it becomes weird. In the way that kind of using mini whiteboards as one-offs become weird, it becomes a bit of a gimmick. Whereas if silence is the norm, if silence is the default, then it becomes embedded into students' routine. It becomes embedded into their expectations of what maths lessons are. And therefore they start to make the most of it. They start to appreciate the benefits. Because I'm, I've been there myself, <laughs> like just to go back to that one. I had a noisy class, they've been working away. Some of them sure have been making the most of it, kind of talking to the person next to them about the maths, but a hell of a lot of them have been talking a load of nonsense. The, the noise cre levels crept up. I mean, have you seen those things that you get um on the mini whiteboards like a noise level and you say to kids right if the noise goes above this point then it's too noisy well kids kids it's like a flipping waiting for a bomb to go off kids are push, pushing it as close as they can to, to that level but it's not the noise itself i mean of course that is annoying but it's, it's it's the content it's what kids are actually talking about whereas if and then whenever you say okay being silence then it's, it's, again, it's like a bomb waiting to go off because the kids are thinking, well, okay, well, this is only gonna last for five minutes and I can go back to kind of messing around again. They, they don't realize that the silence is to help them concentrate, help them focus on one thing, help them cut out distracting noises, help them concentrate on their own work and retrieving things from their long-term memory and so on and so forth. So if silence is used regularly, it becomes the norm, it doesn't become a gimmick and students start to see the benefit of it. And that has become a massive one for me now. And it takes a long time, particularly if kids aren't used to it. It's great at the start of the year, particularly if you inherit a class for the first time or if you get year sevens or something like that because they don't have any prior expectations. But trying to bring it in in March or April or something like that is tough, it is tough. But I, I do believe students start to see the benefit of it. And starting with Silent Teacher, on a regular basis whenever doing a worked examples. And then also the first time students start working on a set of problems or an activity, starting them in silence. And I use this four, two combo, four minutes of silence, two minutes of talking, four minutes of silence, two minutes of talking. And sure, some kids are gonna take the mic and talk about non-math stuff, but more kids than I expected to make the most of that time. So yeah, just, Reflecting on silence, that conversation with Gemma has made me think really hard about that and, and just how to make students value it. And I think silence being the norm or the default and not a gimmick allows kids to make the most of the silence and make the most of the non-silence. And the second and final thing I wanted to reflect on is, is Gemma's planning of lessons. Now, again, this has become a regular theme on the podcast. We are no longer planning one-off lessons. We're thinking about sequences of lessons. And looking back now, I can't believe how bad my planning used to be. 
it used to be just one-off lessons. And it's whenever, you know, when, when you've got five lessons a day and you're knackered, you, you think in terms of one-off lessons. Well, when I was on good form, on a Sunday, I'd try and plan the lessons for the week. But even then, if I, on my scheme of work, I've got fractions for two weeks, I'd, I wouldn't plan all the fractions lessons together. Best case, I'd plan three or four of them, but I'd still think of them in kind of single unit blocks. Lesson one, we do this, box that off. Lesson two, we do a starter, a main, a plea, we box that off. Lesson three is all about this. Whereas what my kind of far more experienced and better teacher guests than, than I than I am have really taught me over these last few years is, is that's the wrong way to do it. It's about a sequence of lessons and almost wherever the lesson ends, it doesn't matter. You just pick up from where you started the next time. It, it doesn't have to be in these discrete blocks. Um, and one concept that, that has really helped me think about this, and Gemma referred to it um, in the podcast, is the concept of a learning episode. Now, I first read about this for, from Mark McCourt in his excellent um, series of blog posts on mastery. And it was in part three. And if you, if you haven't read these, I'll, I'll put a link to them in the show notes. But if you just Google Mark McCourt mastery blog, you'll see it. And part three, it's a flipping epic. It's like 20 odd thousand words. But in it, he introduces the concept of a learning episode and he defines it to be the amount of time required to grip a novel idea. And Mark goes on to say, crucially, there's no fixed time period for this. Some things can be learnt in an hour, but some things may take weeks or years. And I've really been thinking of this, this concept of a learning episode to help my planning. And Mark has kind of wonderful diagrams, um, how he thinks about these learning episodes. But I've tried to really kind of simplify it for what works for me. And I'm still playing around with this. But, but what I'm thinking of at the moment is when I'm planning a sequence of lessons out now, I think to myself, okay, let's start with an introduction. Let's start with a way of introducing this concept. Now, um, I'm going to put out my, I don't quite know the order of this, but I don't know whether it will have been out yet, my interview with Alex Quigley, and the, an, an English teacher. But um, he really brought home to me the, the importance of the etymology of words. So showing kids where words come from and how they fit into the bigger picture of other words that they, they will have encountered within the subject. And that for me has almost become my favorite way of introducing a concept. So take something like polygon or mean or median, breaking that word down. What do each component of that word mean? Where else have we seen this in mathematics? So some form of introduction, and it may be like a video hook. It may be um, some GeoGebra dynamic file or something. Maybe a, a striking image to take advantage of the modality effect. Keep the text away, just a striking image on there to provoke discussion. But some way of introducing the, the topic. Um, and then I'll move into atomization. Now, this is something I'm going to be talking more about Naveen, uh, with Naveen Rizvi when she comes back on the show for part two. This idea of breaking down a complex process into its atoms and sorting out each of those atoms, those building blocks first. Because the way I've started thinking about worked examples now, and I hope this makes sense, that for worked examples should, for me, should be a novel way of putting together pre-existing knowledge. So kids have got all these, all these atoms of knowledge. They can do all these individual things really well. And then the worked example is just a novel way of putting that back together again. Whereas, so let's take something like adding fractions, which is my default boring example. But when I'm teaching kids how to add fractions together, 
and I'm going through a worked example, I shouldn't be having to teach them how to find lowest common denominator or how to simplify fractions or their number bonds or something like that. That should all be sorted prior to it so that when we do the process of, of adding fractions together, it's just a novel way of putting together things that kids are already familiar with. So that for me is where the atomization comes into this learning episode. Breaking something down, teaching it, for me it'll be using intelligent practice or using my rule-based activities from variation theory but just breaking these atoms down and sorting them out. Then will come the example problem pair. And that, as I say again, that'll be putting together familiar stuff in a novel way. And those of you who have heard me bang on about this will know that there's five stages to this. So there's silent teacher, there's narration and annotation, there's copy down into books, there's your turn, and then the show call. So we'll go through that process to put together in this novel way, this familiar, these, these familiar processes. Then will come the intelligent practice for me which could be a sequence of questions. And again, I won't just be handing it out and having a cup of tea and thinking my learners are gonna become amazing mathematicians. It will be discussions. It'll be one-to-one -one discussions, whole class discussions. It'll be drawing their attention to relationships and so on and so forth, using the reflect, expect, check behavior. And if you're interested in more of that, go to variationtheory.com. I spell all that out in the please read section. And after intelligent practice will come a process of retrieval. And that could be in starters. It could be mixed topic homeworks. It could be in low stakes quizzes. It could be in diagnostic questions, but it will be seeing whether kids have taken on board this novel way of putting together this information. And once that's sorted, once I think, okay, most of my kids have got the basics of this, then comes the problem solving elements, then comes my SSDD problems, then comes goal free problems, then comes purposeful practice, then comes things like the UKMT questions that interleave different topics. But that comes at the end of the learning episode. And throughout all of this is formative assessment because without formative assessment, I've no idea whether my kids are learning things. And for me, my favorite way of formative assessment is diagnostic questions, but it doesn't have to be. It can just be the questions and conversations that we have with students throughout. But that for me is a learning episode. I really like this notion of it. It helps me think about the planning. It helps me think about the order of it, the sequencing of it. And as I say, for some topics, that could be two lessons. For other topics, it could be two weeks, three weeks. And I might have to break it up. I might not do the problem solving at the end of it. I might just take a break, go on to a different topic and then come back to the problem solving later because the process of retrieval may take longer. But just as Gemma plans these sequences of lessons out, that's what I'm starting doing now. Mapping all that out first, getting my order, getting my structure, then bringing in all the different resources and so on and so forth. And I've just, it just makes more sense to me than thinking in terms of these discrete learning units of lessons, which is just so artificial. Anyway, don't know if any of that makes any sense. It's just what I'm playing around with. And if, if, you, if you're unlucky enough to hear me speak anytime in the next few months, I'll be banging on about this left, right and centre. Anyway, all that remains for me to do is to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Obviously, a massive thank you to Gemma Sherwood. Can you believe that she thought she wouldn't have anything new to offer to us listeners? Wow. Thank God she came on and thank God she's coming back on the show because I really want to dig into a book. It's a 
absolutely fantastic book and also into running a department because the running a department episodes that we've had in the past are some of the most popular. It's heads of department find them useful, aspiring heads of department find them useful, senior leaders find them useful and so on and so forth. Um, so a massive thank you to Gemma and finally a massive thank you to you my lovely loyal listeners if you haven't um, done the following two things if you could I will massively appreciate it the first is leave a review of the show ideally a good one wherever you download your podcast from and secondly choose one of your favourite episodes it may be this one it could be one with non-mathematicians Dylan William it could be David Didow um, it could be Doug Lamar, Daisy Christodoulou, all the big names. Choose your favourite episode and recommend it to a friend. Get them listening to it. Suggest that they listen to it on the way into work or whilst doing the washing up or something like that. Free CPD on the move that hopefully gives you ideas and challenges your thinking. I would really appreciate it if you could do that. Anyway, I shall be back with more fascinating guests and conversations over the next few months and years, hopefully. But for now, let me say goodbye. So you take care of yourselves and bye. Bye.